0: Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. She gets this new device, and she hands it to me. She's like,
1: just show me how you test your bloods, just so I can see you're doing it correctly. So I prick my finger, I squeeze the little blood drop out, and I insert it into the meter, and the result flashes on the screen. 16 and her face goes white as a ghost because she's worked with my dad for 10 years. They're very close colleagues. I looked at my dad, he was in a state of panic. I could see inside and I was just like, what happened? She's like, it says 16, but there might be a mistake. My dad's like, there's definitely a mistake with the meter. Go get a new one. There's no way my son is like, like total denial. She went and got a new meter, tested it again. Same result, 16. It was the lowest moment of my life that I was diagnosed with this chronic, you know, incurable lifelong condition with really scary long-term complications. I was like, okay, this has actually happened. I've got diabetes now. And that was it. That was it. That was it.
0: That's Drew Harrisburg. And this, and this is episode number 62 of the Plant Proof Podcast. friends, here we are another week, another episode. It's so good to be back here with you again. I hope you've been well. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, the Plant Proof Podcast, qualified physiotherapist, and I'm currently finishing my master's in nutrition. Each week on this show, I sit down with super cool folks from all walks of lives, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, etc to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious about the way that we live. This week's guest is a mate of mine from the Bondi area, Drew Harrisburg. Drew is an exercise physiologist with a huge passion for health and well-being. In his early 20s, he was diagnosed out of nowhere with type 1 diabetes, and has since learned so much about not only type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes, pre-diabetes, and insulin resistance in general. What's great about Drew's journey is that he has so much insight into his health via regular blood glucose monitoring, and has tried several dietary frameworks, paleo, keto, plant-based, etc, you name it over the better part of a decade and he has some really really interesting findings and results to share with us. In this podcast, you'll hear the difference between managing blood glucose levels versus truly reversing insulin resistance and what the importance of that is. Although Drew has type 1 diabetes and the information is particularly relevant to anyone with type 1 diabetes or pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, the information we cover in this episode is also relevant to everyone else. Insulin resistance is a spectrum and even without having a diabetes diagnosis, there are certainly various lifestyle factors which can increase or decrease our ability to tolerate carbohydrates. Ultimately, our ability to tolerate healthful carbohydrates is directly linked to the development of many chronic diseases and premature death. Friends, this is a relatively long episode with so many important messages. It's an episode that you are going to absolutely love. So I'm going to keep this introduction short. It's time to hand things over to Drew. I'll see you on the other side. Harrisburg and Giuseppe. <laughs> Welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Mate, I'm honoured to be here. We, um, we should probably paint the picture and, and why I just introduced two guests to the show at once there. <laughs> Drew's currently sitting sitting with my one of my lap dogs, Giuseppe. So hopefully Giuseppe and Gnocchi are well behaved.
1: And hopefully they have endurance because this could be a marathon episode.
0: This could be. This could be the longest Plant Proof Podcast today. We'll see how we go. How are you feeling about that? Man, I'm excited. There's so much to talk about. I just hope that we can get through it all. No doubt we will. And uh, we've we had a nice swim this morning. Beautiful start to the day.
1: Sun, what did you call it? A swim rise. Swim rise.
0: I like, yeah. It. Get down there right as the sun's coming up. It was pretty oh, magic. It was amazing. The water's nice and warm. The skies were pink. We nailed it. How would you describe Bondi, and what what do you love most about Bondi? To you know, some of the listeners who may not have visited.
1: I think the thing about Bondi is <laughs> people get so shocked when they see the fitness culture and how you get down there at like what time we were there at 6 30 there's literally a thousand people Mm. training running on the beach boot camps you know everyone's had a swim grab a coffee it's just this like complete understanding of being connected to nature using the environment everyone's just like super grateful to be alive and happy and healthy and it's
0: just the the energy down there's amazing yeah it's so conducive to just well-being in general, Absolutely. you can't you can't live in Bondi and not be just inspired. Yeah, exactly by that, you exactly. know. And, and it's, it, I can imagine living for me personally, living further away from the beach. It's it's harder sometimes to get up mm. and and get the training, but it, it makes it quite easy mm. when you know you can just wander down, short stroll, and jump on the sand. And and you never ever. Regret, regret a workout. You only regret the yeah. workout that you didn't do.
1: Hundred percent, and a swim. You never a regret swim. a swim, even in winter. Like I make sure to swim. I try to swim every day of the year. I literally never miss a day, especially in winter. There's something so rewarding about just you know put yourself through that little bit of that little bit of stress, a little bit of cold pain, and the reward for the day is like you've accomplished something before your day's even started. Yeah, I'm with you. I love the freshness in the oh, winter. I,
0: I mean, now I'm looking forward to the winter month, months yeah, coming.
1: Absolutely, and the beach is a little bit more quiet. I mean, you, you stroll down by foot. I have to drive down sometimes and parking's pretty difficult around Bondi. Yeah, it can be.
0: Popular place. Yeah, the, um, I think the best weekends in Bondi are when the forecast says it's going to be stormy or wet yeah. and then it changes. Yeah, exactly. And the crowds are away and yeah. it's um, you've got a little bit of paradise to yourself. Well, you just gave away the secret. so. <laughs> there we go. Um, mate, I'm, I'm pumped to have you on the show today. Awesome. I think there's very few people with... The journey that you've had and the the insight into not only type 1 diabetes, but insulin resistance uh, in its broader form, mm. but also the, this experience with various dietary frameworks and underpinning all of it is a, a, a real understanding and passion for the science, mm. which is what makes your story so unique and, and something that is very powerful, which I look forward to to sharing today because I know that a lot of listeners will gain from, you know, the various words of wisdom that you mm. share today.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things about, about type 1 diabetes is you get so many objective insights into how your body's working because as part of the disease, I'm monitoring all these little things every day. So, you know, like you said, I'm a big science nerd like you, like you are. <laughs> I've sort of experimented with so many different things over the years and just having this objective insight to, to really
0: quantify the, the changes that I'm seeing is, is really fascinating. And I think before we do start to dive into your story and journey, and we talk about different dietary frameworks, I know that you and I are on the same page in that this discussion is not about demonizing any certain dietary framework and by no means is, is designed at all to make anyone feel bad about a certain dietary choice that they've made, or maybe thinking about, it's a discussion which can hopefully inspire people to see that there are other options, and there's different ways of, of thinking of things, and, and there's other science to to be explored and yeah. to be understood.
1: Absolutely, I'm so glad you said that. I think both of us respect anyone who's who's striving for optimal health. You know, we're all on on a journey to be the healthiest that we can be. There's so many different methods out there and ways to do it and diets and exercise and all these different things. And we're not judging anybody based on what choice they made. We just want to paint the big picture and let people see that these are the options when it comes to improving your health. Like I said, we respect anyone who's trying to do that, but we're not demonizing any particular method. And we, you know, it doesn't feel good. But I mean, I've been on the receiving end of plenty of this sort of demonization and I've even been, a victim, I've been um, guilty of it myself. Of demonizing certain things in the past, and when you really try a bit of everything and you experiment and look at
0: the research, you, you can come to some pretty strong conclusions. Mm. Hopefully, today we can highlight that. And, and there's, you know, there there is a lot that some of these more popular dietary frameworks actually do agree on. Correct. Which is going to be a focus of the conversation today to, yep. to flesh out not only the various points that that proponents may disagree on, but what are the areas that everyone agrees on, which you know changes that everyone should make in terms yeah. of bettering their health. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's let's just wind back the clock we're, we're in Bondi now we spoke about it this morning going for a swim in Bondi. I know that you've lived here for quite some time. Where did you grow up? What was life like as a as a kid for you and what were your sort of interests and hobbies?
1: So yeah, as you said, grew up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Spent most of my time at Bondi. Mate, I had an amazing childhood. To be honest, you know, I I spent a ton of time outdoors in nature. I lived across the road from a park. I was on my bike all the time exploring in the bushes. I was, you know, making friends across the street. We didn't have we didn't have phones and stuff back then. It sounds so weird to think that, but like, you know, my childhood was really amazing. Um, I had I had all the time in the world to do whatever I wanted. I guess my main two passions when I was a kid are the same ones that are my passions now. Is that I was always a health-conscious person. I was very, very connected with nature, loved to be outdoors. I was super interested in sport and, and even science and the way the body works and nutrition. I just had this in, inherent like connection with those things. And then on the other side of, this, of the spectrum of, of passions, I was really, really interested in music. And I sort of had these dreams of becoming a rock star and this you know famous singer-songwriter and... And this is for, what, from like a really early age or teenage. I reckon I was I was always singing. Like my parents, you know, I was I was literally singing all the time we were in the car road trips with in the my shower. sister in the shower, <laughs> anywhere and everywhere. I think I was even in like a boy's vocal group at school. Okay. Like seriously, I was obsessed with it. And when I was about 10 years old, my parents bought me a guitar. And that's where it all kind of started, where I wrote a song when I was 10 years old and you know, obviously it wasn't the best song in hindsight, but the fact that I was a 10-year-old or 11-year-old yeah. trying to write music. It was the start. It, it was obviously in me. So, yeah. you know, and t- to this day, those are my, my passions.
0: It's still the same. And what about, I guess, that connection between food and health? Is that something that you thought about, you know, when you were that age or got heading into teenage years in high school and things like that?
1: I mean, so I come from a family of doctors. So both my parents are doctors. My dad is a eye surgeon. And my mom is a GP. She specializes in you know, women's health. So we were a health-conscious family, obviously. My, my, I've got both dogs on my lap now. <laughs> Welcome, Gnocchi. Hey, fellas. Gnocchi, how are you, mate? Yeah, so coming from a family of doctors, obviously, we were, we were a health-conscious family. But if I really take an honest look at the food that I was brought up on and my nutrition, it wasn't the healthiest, but it also wasn't the worst. So what I would say is I kind of I ate everything. So I ate a lot of healthy food. Talk, uh, talk me through a day of of. What so that obviously, like. animal animal products were the, were the hero of every meal. Um, a lot of meat, fish, eggs, dairy, plenty of fruit and vegetables. I remember, I remember being that kid at school who would always have the healthy food in the lunchbox, and no one would want to share with. You know how when you're a kid, like it's like hey, one for one. You know, yeah, chip. Yeah, yeah. I was never that guy. I, I wasn't interested in the Doritos or the whatever the kids were bringing to school. And they didn't care for my apples and and bananas. So So
0: you were aware that you were eating
1: slightly different to this average kid in your class. Exactly. So I was definitely eating a lot more sort of real whole food, but I was also eating plenty of processed food. So breakfast as a kid was like 12 Wheat Bix drowned in milk, you know. Um, What was that? There was an
0: ad, wasn't there, with the cricketer, like how many can you (laughs) do? And it worked.
1: (laughs) It got me. (laughs) So it was kind of, yeah, it became like, The staple of my breakfast was just this like cereal, processed cereal drowned in cow's milk. Obviously, having that every day of your life, is probably not the healthiest thing to do as a kid. And little did I know that I had probably a predisposition to diabetes. And in hindsight, now, you know, retrospectively,
0: that was not the best breakfast. Yeah, which we'll no doubt explore in a bit. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think for guys our age, it's probably very, very common that wheat bix and, and dairy milk mm. was a staple breakfast because I remember that was the same for me and it was the more the, more the better. And quite often I'd come home from school and even have just a, a, a whole glass of milk mm. because I remember thinking this is what I need to be a strong growing boy that's it as a teenager I'm playing basketball football I'm swimming that's it I need strong bones and I need to grow yeah and you know I was sort of conditioned to almost I think thinking that it was like a real necessity I had to do it so it's it's interesting how you can be you know conditioned from from marketing and that's it you know it's something that sort of flows from the top down though cuz you know, dairy over the years has made its way into the food pyramids mm-hmm. and, you know, it's something that a lot of doctors recommend and things like that. So yeah. it's not something that you and I can sort of look back on and think, oh, we should have done that. We made the wrong decision. You know, it's, it's the times that we grew up in.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's our fault. I don't think we should blame ourselves. You said it best. We, we were essentially a victim to marketing. I mean, they nailed it.
0: They, they, they did. They targeted. You almost have to take your hat off <laughs> to to some of the marketing and how Seriously. Like, let's just strip away all of the the negative health effects and anything ethically yeah. about it, and let's look at it from a marketing point of view. And yeah. some of these companies have done an right. enormous job. Absolutely, they um, nailed their job. <laughs> they,
1: they really did. They they targeted young. Kids who are highly influential by, you know, mm-hmm. these figures or role models. You know, like you said, I think it was like the cricketers or like yeah. it's
0: like Brett Lee or something, like, can you outdo Brett Lee's wheat big bowl? Stuff like that. I mean, the kids fall for that. It's great. Isn't it interesting though that now, right? I was reading about Beyond Burger in, in the States, which is a rival to Impossible Burger. So they they're doing plant-based burgers. And Beyond Burger's strategy now is a little bit less of a sort of nutritional focus and a, an ingredient focus than Impossible Burger, the direct competitor. What Beyond Burger does is puts their burger in the right people's hands mm. and it, it's making these plant burgers cool. It's getting it in the hands of the NBA players wow. <laughs> and, and the NFL players and that's their strategy and yeah. it's kind of it, – it, it is what we saw with Dairy and other products like that. Yeah,
1: using these big names, big faces – to carry their message and and just hope that the math. like think think about the enormous amount of people that follow these, these role models, we're going to copy what they eat, you know, especially like the young kids Yeah, straight up, like whatever they're doing, I want to do because it must be working. And I, I think that's something that over the years I have actually made many, many mistakes in my own experimenting by just simply listening to people telling me things without understanding
0: where that information is actually coming from. And it can be hard. It can be hard for Absolutely. like for, for for someone who doesn't have either the time or the skills to go back and look at the science, right? Where are they getting most of their information from? Mm. They're getting it from what they see in the grocery store, what they see yep. on on TV, what they see on social media, mm. what's on the back of the bus. Exactly. You know? And when you're seeing it here, there and everywhere, it becomes the reality. Yeah. Take me through this stage of your life as a a sort of teenager, you were having a healthy-ish sort of Western Australian type of diet. What was your health like? Did you ever have any health problems as a teenager? And did you know what type 1 diabetes or (laughs) diabetes was? Was there anyone in your life that had been affected by diabetes? Okay. So growing up,
1: almost no health problem, super healthy kid, all the energy in the world, could eat whatever I wanted, impossible for me to gain weight. I was sort of just getting away with it for for many many years diabetes was firstly i had no idea what it was no idea but secondly chronic disease just was not on the radar there was no chance that i thought that i was going to be the guy to get a chronic disease like my parents are doctors i eat what i thought at the time was a healthy diet i'm super active you know i'm i'm spending a lot of time outdoors i'm a healthy weight i'm you know heavily into my sports performing well, I'm not going to get a chronic disease. Like it wasn't on the radar and it wasn't for my parents either. So for all intents and purposes, you were bulletproof. Exactly. I felt invincible, which uh, <laughs> became a huge wake-up call a few years later. But yeah, I mean, growing up, like it just, I, I felt unstoppable and it sort of set me up to, in a sense, it made the diagnosis even more difficult because I had this mentality, like I was immune to any chronic disease. You sort of think, you this hit, can't be true. Yeah, you just hit a certain age. You're like, oh, I'm disease-free. I'm not going to get
0: disease, you know. And uh, it doesn't discriminate. You can get anyone. So take me through this, the journey from, you know, high school to then you went to university, you studied. What did you study? Mm-hmm. And what was your sort of journey like in, the, in those years up to the stage where you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes?
1: So in high school, like I said before, my passions were, were health and, and fitness and sport and all that sort of stuff. And I kind of made a decision that after school, I was going to go to university and get a degree in sports science. So I finished, I finished school, went to uni, did this Bachelor of Science in exercise and sport. Um, and I, at that stage, I was really interested in elite athletes. So I wanted to work as like a strength and conditioning coach for like a major sports team. Um, like I, I dreamed of being the, co- the, the uh, exercise physiologist on like the Waratahs or something, Right. And so I went to university, which is a really cool job. You know, yeah, they do well, they do some some great stuff. Yeah, it'd be fascinating just working with elite athletes. So, to me, that sounded like a fun way to live my life, and I was I was very passionate about that. So yeah, I did that degree at, at uni, and I was sort of I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. Was it go straight into the elite athletes, or did I want to try sort of look into more of a hospital setting, like cardiac rehab or something like that? So I decided I, I'd do a um, As part of my accreditation to become an an exercise physiologist that I'd go do some like work experience at a hospital. And so I would have been about 20, maybe 21 at this stage. And I, again, at this point in my life, I felt pretty damn good. There seemed to be nothing wrong. And I started doing this this, uh, accreditation with with the hospital. And over those weeks that I was doing it, rapid, rapid changes started to happen. Right, to my body, I was noticing physically things were changing. um how old were you at this stage? so this is about 21, 21 22 yep well, the symptoms now in hindsight it was so blatantly obvious that I had diabetes, but at the time you just don't know what they are you know you're not it's not on the radar so you don't think about these sort of things but anyway, I, the first things I started to notice were that I had these like signs of in, in, intense inflammation throughout my body so I had these like chronic shin splints. I was playing a lot of rugby at the time. And I'd have to get to the game 45 minutes before the game to warm up my shins so that I could just run. And then once once the game was over, I was in agony for like a couple of days, barely walk. So my shins were flaring up. I was noticing that my sinuses were constantly congested. So I was in this state of like systemic inflammation, just did not feel good. Those were sort of non-diabetic related signs and symptoms. But then I started to notice some real, real serious
0: uh, signs and symptoms, which were. And just before you go into that, was that was this something? I mean, both your parents are doctors. Your mother's a GP. Was that something at that stage you were speaking to them about, or were you kind of thinking, "Oh, maybe I'm doing a bit too much exercise, and I just need to pull back on the on the physical activity side of things"? Yeah,
1: the latter. So we 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 thought I was overtraining and under recovering. We, we like I said we. Because disease wasn't on the radar, we just thought it had to be something to do with my my everyday lifestyle. Yeah, sure. Something I was doing. So, but then when I was doing this um, work experience at the hospital, I was noticing that I was waking up every night drinking water. I was so thirsty. I had to just drink, 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 sculling water, always needing to go to the toilet, constantly hungry, constantly tired. Like I'm talking, this story makes me feel sick when I even say it, but on the first day of this uh, meeting the sort of the head of the cardiac rehab at this hospital i'm sitting face to face at a table like just like we are right now and i
0: fell asleep in the interview for this Gosh, hospital. i mean it shows the seriousness of and, and and how quickly this can can happen mate i i could not believe
1: that i was falling asleep face to face in a job interview i was literally sticking a pen into my leg under the table I was like trying to squeeze into my, like dig my nails into my thigh, anything to stay awake. And my brain was just shutting off. I could not stay awake. So that was the, that was the first time I was like, wow, this, this is getting scary. Like something something's, large is happening. Yeah, there's something brewing. That's right. There might be something big going on in the background that we don't know about. So anyway, that same day, I fell asleep driving my car home from the hospital. I used to drive uh, through the Cross City Tunnel and I fell asleep in the tunnel and I woke up inches from the wall and I just swerved back into my lane again, slapping myself, like trying anything to stay awake just to get through the tunnel. I got out the tunnel at the other end, I pulled over in Rushcutter Bay and I slept in my car for half an hour. I could not keep my eyes open. So that, that level of
0: exhaustion, it's obviously is beyond normal. And it was unexplainable in that you were super healthy. You weren't, you know, having long nights up partying or things like
1: that. Absolutely. I was was sleeping all the time. Early nights working at this hospital.
0: It just didn't make sense. It wasn't like yeah, like I was burning the candle, like you just said. I was not. What were you thinking at that stage? Were you starting to like self-diagnose? Was there any any other conditions that you were thinking? Oh gosh, I hope I don't have this or that. Well, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, so I
1: I went to some pretty negative places. I actually did think I did a silly thing to do is don't ever do a Google search of these things because apparently, according to Google, I, I had multiple different types of cancers and other things. I was really, it was so scary. So I thought the best thing to do is tell my parents who are doctors. I said, I just said to my, my folks, guys, please send me for a blood test. There's something wrong. Like I had lost so much weight. I was super, super skinny, you know, and I was an athletic guy. Like I was in the gym often and my muscle was just wasting away. I was training hard, getting weaker, losing muscle. My rugby coach was like, you got to start eating more. Like you're actually getting too small to play. I was a fullback. He's like, you, you need to put on some size. And I'm like, mate, I'm eating all day, every day. Whatever I want, I can't gain weight. In fact, I'm losing weight. So, you know, the weight loss was was definitely a telltale yeah. sign. Yeah, it was a sign. You know, I caught myself in the mirror a couple of times. I'm like, oh my goodness, what, what what's happened to me? Like I'm wasting away. So, like I said, I, I mentioned to my parents, send me for blood tests. we got to figure out what's going on. So we did, we went for blood tests and we got a whole bunch done, like eight, nine, 10 tubes of blood, just to check for everything. And there were a couple of very, very key blood results that came back. The first one was what's called an HbA1c, which is basically a three month average blood sugar level. Now in somebody without diabetes, it should absolutely be in in the normal range. Mine came back outside of the normal range. Very minor. I think it was, I think was the upper end of the normal range, I believe, is about six. I think mine came back at like 6.3 or 6.5 or something, which just didn't seem right. So my parents straight away were really nervous about that. Then they, we got back another blood result, which kind of confirmed what was about to happen next. And this result was autoimmune antibodies. They came back in the thousands mm. to my islet cells or beta cells of the pancreas, which is a sign that your body's attacking exactly. those cells. So that was a sign that there was an autoimmune attack going on behind the scenes. It's a silent attack. You don't, it could happen for years. It might've been happening for 10 years without me knowing it. And then you get to this point where it starts to become symptomatic in all the things I just explained before. So we've got these antibodies back. we got the HbA1c back and we went to the RPA hospital to the diabetes clinic where my dad ironically and this is a sickening irony, was and is their, basically one of their biggest um, diabetic eye surgeons. So he works with them very closely. So we went there and we said, okay, so here's the results. And we sat down with an endocrinologist and a diabetes educator and a whole bunch of people. And they've looked at my results and they said, listen, Drew, you. it looks like you are on your way to potentially developing type 1 diabetes. You don't have it yet because your fasting glucose was normal. But you've got antibodies. So this might mean that you 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 might get diabetes in the next five days, five years. We don't know. Maybe you won't get it at all. But what we're going to do is we're going to give you this blood glucose meter. You're going to go home and you're going to just measure your blood sugar throughout the day. If you ever see a number that is above, I can't remember what they said, but it was like eight or nine or 10, come straight back to the clinic immediately. So took this meter home. And at this point, like just, just keep in mind, I... One week before this was Invincible and now all of a sudden I'm staring down the barrel at this potential diagnosis of a lifelong chronic disease that I know nothing about. Must have been so tough to, to, to grasp, to comprehend that. Yeah. The, the, mental, the mental turmoil of, of being kind of in that no man's land. They're like, you don't have it yet but you might get it just monitor. was really scary. So I'm like praying and, f- and fingers crossed that I don't get this thing and I'm, I'm measuring my blood sugars and it seems to be fine for the first couple of weeks. So I'm measuring my blood sugar when I wake up, it's fine. Measuring it after meals, absolutely fine. And then I'm starting to get the
0: confidence. I'm like, nah, I'm not going to get diabetes. My blood sugars are great. And what was happening with the sleep at this stage, though? Those, you know, how you were falling asleep, was that improving or it was not improving? It wasn't improving. It wasn't improving. So th-
1: those signs did not go away. Anyway, I remember one morning waking up, just testing my blood sugar and it was outside of the normal range. So it was about 7.5 and I was very frightened. I was like, oh my goodness, is this the first sign that, you know, maybe this autoimmune attack is just going on too long and I'm running out of, out of time here. Like this, it's actually going to happen. So I retested and again, it was 7.5. So we went back to the clinic. So myself and my father went to the clinic and on our way, we stopped off and got some breakfast, had a big piece of sourdough toast with avocado or whatever it was. And then we sitting face to face with this diabetes educator. And she's like, okay, show me your last two weeks of blood glucose. Let's see how you're going. So I show her, she's like, "Ah, oh, it's all good. looks normal. I'm, what she, then she said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a new meter to try because we've just got a new one in. Give this one a go. So she gets this new device and she hands it to me. She's like, just show me how you test your bloods just so I can see you're doing it correctly. So I prick my finger, I squeeze the little blood drop out and I insert it into the meter and the result. Flashes on the screen, 16. Wow. And her face goes white as a ghost because she's worked with my dad for 10 years. They're very close colleagues. Yeah, so that's a tough situation for, for her. her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we saw her face kind of go like white as a ghost. I looked at my dad. He was in a state of panic. I could see inside and I was just like, what happened? She's like, it says 16, but there might be a mistake. My dad's like, there's definitely a mistake with the
0: meter. Go get a new one. There's no way my son is that. like, like. Total denial. I mean, but he's obviously seeing the complications of diabetes firsthand as a surgeon, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's super frightening for him. Oh, he's dedicated his career to saving the vision of people with diabetes Mm. because blindness
1: is is a massive long-term complication. So she went and got a new meter, tested it again, same result, 16. So that was I guess that was literally the moment that I was diagnosed. Conclusive. With yeah. It was fairly conclusive that my blood sugar 16 is completely abnormal. And we went and did another HbA1c test, which is they have a device there that can do a quick one on the spot. And it came back elevated. And that was pretty much the moment. And that was, you know, I, I say this all the time, you know, the phrase, the world caved in. That was the day I saw it. Like the the actual the atmosphere around me looked different. The world looked different. It was, the, it was the lowest moment of my life that I was diagnosed with this chronic, you know, incurable lifelong condition with really scary long-term complications, sitting next to my dad who, you know, spent his whole life trying to save the vision of people suffering from diabetes and now his son had it. And, you know, this, the, the feeling in the room was so raw, like everyone we were just sitting in silence. We all had tears in our eyes. It was like, okay, it actually happened. I've got
0: diabetes now, and and that was it. That was the moment of, of being diagnosed. And what was the the explanation from professionals around you in terms of a potentially how you developed it, b what it meant for you as a as a young, thriving male, very physically active. What did it mean for you in terms of your not just your long term complications? But also your immediate day-to-day life and how it would affect you doing what you love to do. Mm.
1: So the very first question I asked was, why did I get this? Like what causes diabetes, type one diabetes? And their answer was, we don't know what causes it. it it's an autoimmune attack, it just kind of happens. Which for me wasn't good enough. I wanted real answers. You know, I I wanted to know. What even give me some, some ideas that people are triggered, something like, I just need to understand why me, you know, of course I was in that denial and that, you know, that stage of the, why me, why me? So getting that answer saying, we don't know what causes it left me even more confused. It's like, we don't know what causes it. Now I've got this thing. Well, how do I manage it? And yes, I was told that life will be different with diabetes. You know, insulin is as a therapy. When you, when you take insulin exogenously as a diabetic, it's very very dangerous if you, if you get the dose wrong, absolutely fatal. So, you know, all of a sudden my life was this, I was in autopilot my whole life. And now I'm living day to day with serious, you know, risks of, of short-term and long-term complications. So, you know, I left that room feeling more confused and more alone and lacking self-identity than ever before. I was this you know, a couple months earlier, I was this like athletic, 85 kilos, playing rugby, felt fit and strong and healthy and in, unstoppable. And then the day I was diagnosed, I was 67 kilos, skinny, weak. I just, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't the same guy. I had, to, I had to rediscover who I was over the next
0: little while. And obviously, it's been a big journey since. So you go home from that, that diagnosis, essentially. Mm-hmm. And immediately you're given insulin, exogenous insulin, no,
1: to I, control it? or actually not. So because insulin is so, like I said, such a dangerous and potent hormone, I was told that my next few days would be about monitoring my blood sugar levels and just living the lifestyle I usually would but collecting data so that when we collect two, three, four days of data, then we can look at implementing insulin. Work to- out the dosage. Correct, yeah. exactly. So the next day wake up. When, I guess I didn't actually wake up because I was I couldn't sleep that night. I was so you know disturbed and distressed. But the very next day, I checked my blood sugar and it was through the roof, probably like 15 or something. I decided that I was going to eat my breakfast and go to the gym as I usually would. So I ate breakfast. It was a meal that I would usually eat. I think it was like banana, oats, yogurt or something. My blood sugar shot up to 25. Um, And when I saw that it was 25 after that meal, it was just, it was heartbreaking. Like it really, really upset me. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go to the gym, do what I usually do. So I went into the gym and I did this like awesome, like full body, you know, circuit training every muscle group in the body and kind of just really getting a good sweat on. It was only about 45 or 60 minutes in the gym. Try and take your mind off things. Yeah, just, just exactly. That was my happy place. That, that, the environment of being in the gym was like, you can't think about anything but your next rep. So it was just this beautiful escape for 60 minutes where I could just go to this place where I what I'd do every day. Anyway, I did a great workout and finished up, checked my blood sugar, expecting it to be 25. And this was the moment that literally changed my life was that the number came back saying five in the normal range, perfect blood sugar. So my blood sugar had dropped from 25 down to five in 60 minutes of exercise. And keep in mind, I'm not taking insulin, right? So I'm, I'm in, I've i been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. I'm not producing insulin. So I was just, I could not believe that my blood sugar had come back to the normal
0: range. It would have been elated. Elated. So this was like the first sign that maybe there's something outside of exogenous insulin yeah. that can help me control this that's
1: exactly it was the most empowering moment ever because for the first time since being diagnosed i actually had this little glimmer of hope that i can control
0: this thing isn't it amazing that 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 you know that uh, changing glucose with exercise would be happening with everyone but now that you're measuring your blood glucose you finally got the insight to see that exactly so what that did was it
1: it led me to sort of kind of research like what was the mechanism like how the hell did my blood sugar just go from 25 to 5 in 60 minutes if i don't have insulin because we're taught that insulin is the hormone that regulates blood sugar
0: well maybe we should what we should do just right now in case we've kind of glossed over it for anyone listening is just quickly describe beta cells and insulin and and the glucose relationship yeah okay well why
1: don't we yeah why don't we actually talk about the difference between type 1 and type 2 let's do that yeah okay so Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. Like I said before, it's the immune system attacks the cells of the body. In the case of type 1, it's the beta cells that produce insulin. And when those cells are destroyed, you can no longer produce insulin. So as a type 1 diabetic, you have to either take multiple daily injections of insulin or you go on an insulin pump. Type 2 diabetes is not an autoimmune disease. So in type 2 diabetes, your pancreas still works. It still produces insulin. It can still be secreted into the blood. It just doesn't work properly. So people with type 2 diabetes have some kind of insulin resistance or some kind of insulin signaling that's dysfunctional.
0: So they can't get glucose into the cell
1: despite the presence of insulin. That's correct. So glucose will be flowing through the bloodstream and you just can't get it into the cell where it needs to be. So both type 1 and type 2 are characterized by the same symptoms. Hyperglycemia or high blood sugar. In the one case, it's because we don't make any insulin, so your blood sugar goes high when you eat a carbohydrate I'm meal. Diabetes, correct. And in the other case, your high, you have a high blood sugar because the insulin is not working and won't let it get into the cells. So when I finished this workout and I, you know, realized that well, hey, I don't even have any insulin, and if insulin is the thing that gets the glucose out of the blood into the cells, how did the glucose get into the cells? Like I had to know that answer, and. You know, thankfully having a background in science and being, you know, gone to university as an exercise physiologist, I had the resources to look into this. So it turns out that we actually have another mechanism that can open what's called like a glucose gateway to the cell. Insulin is one of the mechanisms. So when insulin binds to its receptor, it basically stimulates a cascade of like intracellular events that stimulate a glucose transporter, which is called GLUT4 from inside the cell, which then relocates to the surface of the cell, the membrane, and it acts like a gateway that glucose can flow into the cell. Well, it turns out that exercise stimulates that exact same glucose transporter, but it doesn't require any binding of insulin. So it's called exercise-induced GLUT4 translocation or or non-insulin-mediated GLUT4 translocation. So basically what I'd done is I'd done this full body workout. So I'd stimulated GLUT4 at all of my muscles across the body because it's site-specific as well, this glute 4 translocation. So if you do bicep curls, you're going to translocate GLUT4 in the bicep. If you're doing your calf raises, in the calf. Gotcha. So when you do a full body workout- Yeah, maximum results. Exactly. It's like your whole body turns into like this big sponge and just soaks up glucose from your whole body. So I'd obviously experienced that mechanism. And that was the day that I realized not only can I control my diabetes with exercise, but that- I am now empowered and responsible for taking control because just the day before, I was a victim and I was a slave to my diabetes. And you were reliant on insulin. Exactly. I thought insulin was the only thing that could help me, but that gave me the power to understand
0: that lifestyle factors play a massive role in this. And outside of of exercise, you mentioned your dad was shocked. How, How was your diagnosis? Received by friends other members of your family part of the community I mean it was absolutely
1: shocking because I I mean I was I was kind of the picture of health if you looked at me you know people thought I was the picture of health you know I was a sporty active guy and I was I wasn't overweight and I was really a health conscious person so the community and my family and friends everybody was broken um, you know i I didn't like talking about it. And I actually, I was hiding it for many, many weeks, months, even years, where I couldn't test my blood sugar in public. I couldn't inject insulin in public. I didn't want anyone to know that I had diabetes. I was ashamed. And I was ashamed because of the stigma associated with diabetes, just because I didn't understand the disease yet.
0: Talk me through those stigmas. What, what, what are they? What were you ashamed of? One of the stigmas with diabetes is that it's a disease caused by
1: being unhealthy and lazy and not taking care of yourself and eating too much sugar, which is just blatantly false, Uh, especially in, in, in the case of type 1 diabetes being this autoimmune disease. There are so many factors that lead to getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes or any autoimmune disease for that matter. So you know, when people would see me, say, checking my blood sugar and then they'd ask, oh, do you have diabetes? And I'd say yes. Then they would say, oh, so you must have eaten too much sugar as a kid. And that just getting that question over and over, I couldn't deal with it. It was so frustrating. I didn't want to answer it. I didn't want to be seen as this like sick person who had mm-hmm. to measure their the sugar. label. Yes, it was, I was labeled. Exactly. And I hadn't identified as being a diabetic yet. You know, it was early days. Um, probably the hardest part of the diagnosis in the beginning was seeing my parents so broken and my family, my sister and everyone. You know, they, they, they knew a lot about the complications of diabetes, you know, being medically trained. I didn't actually know about them at that point so well. Your sister's
0: a doctor too, right? Sister's was, a doctor. She, was she
1: training then or she was already? Um, I think she was actually training. She would have been early on in her training. She did a dietetics course, uh, Nutrition or something at university before that. So, yeah, I was, I was very confused about do I, do I tell people I have diabetes? Do I hide it? You know, I, and I just physically, not feeling myself in my body, I, I was hiding away inside. I realized that I wasn't going out as much. I wasn't socializing. I didn't want to take my shirt off at the beach. I'd become this recluse. Um, I've completely lost my sense of humor. My personality changed. Retrospectively, I've realized that I was depressed. It's funny because I had no idea at the time that I was suffering from depression until you come out the other side and you're like, oh my gosh, I think I I was depressed. So yeah, it was really, really tough. Um, I felt bad for my parents feeling so sad. That I would hide my
0: diabetes from them as well. I wouldn't tell them if I was doing good or bad. So or you were really f- dealing in, and suffering in silence, you know, trying to hide this away yeah. from parents, family, friends, public. Absolutely. I think I'm I'm the I'm an extreme introvert in, in that sense.
1: Is that if something in my life isn't where I want it to be, or I feel uncomfortable or sad or something,
0: I go to being alone to regain my energy and my confidence. What would you go back now if you could go back and talk to yourself on the day of diagnosis when it felt like your entire world had collapsed? What Mm -hmm. would you say to yourself?
1: This is going to sound crazy and people aren't going to believe it when I say this, but I would say to myself, if you just hang in there, you're going to end up being the healthiest version of yourself and the happiest and the most fulfilled Because diabetes has given me so much more than it's taken from me. And it took me years to get to this point. But I finally realized that the adversity that I went through in getting this chronic disease was, in a sense, a gift because it has totally changed my values in life. It's totally changed my perspective on myself and the world. And it's given me, it's given me things that I would never have been able to achieve without this diagnosis. It's given me a platform to to reach a lot of people given me the ability to educate people, inspire and motivate and create a career for me. It, it, yeah, it's really given me a lot. So I would, I would say to myself, you know, adversity is not something that we need to fear, that we actually need to embrace it because the opportunity for growth is immense. And I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying that, you know, I often say adversity is an amplifier. It'll make you more of who you already are. And it's character building. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It it reveals who you are. And, you know, I was already this health conscious person and it made me more of that. I was already passionate and and driven and made me more passionate and driven. But if you are entitled or victim, you know, that victim mentality or the why me, why me, it can make you more of that too, Mm. which is why I'm not saying adversity makes you a better person always. How you react to it. Correct. I've seen it cripple people too. What it does is it allows you to see yourself through a lens that you would never have seen yourself through before. So if you are someone who's negative and then you get struck by some sort of chronic illness or or some serious adversity, whether it's financial adversity, relationships, whatever it is, you're going to see yourself under a microscope that you've never seen yourself mm-hmm. before. And it's going to give you an opportunity to change and become someone who you want to be, or it will
0: give you an opportunity to become more of who you already are just to a greater extent. It's It's vulnerability that it's, you know, at its greatest point almost. And to, to grow, you need to often make yourself vulnerable. That's right. Yeah, I think it, it
1: gives you a real perspective on your strengths and weaknesses. And that, that's why I, if I could go back in time and say to myself, mate, you're about to go on a journey and really discover who you are, you might end up the best version of yourself. Mm. That, that's the reality of it.
0: Mm. You know, we hear all the time people say step outside of your comfort zone. You were removed outside of your comfort zone. Yep, totally. So you, you go home, you haven't been given insulin, exogenous insulin, you're monitoring your blood glucose so that the doctors can work out, okay, Drew, this is, this is what you require. Now, we've spoken and you've explained to me, but I think it will be great for the listeners to describe the different types of insulin and what a day looks like for you in terms of managing your blood glucose. So I was given two types of insulin,
1: right? Um, and that's because I, I made the choice to use the multiple daily injections. I did have a choice to go on a pump. An insulin pump is it's very expensive, it's about ten thousand dollars. And what it is is it basically is a insulin administering device that is always attached to you. So there's a little tube that goes in under your skin. And this pump literally pumps insulin into your body. It acts like kind of like an external pancreas in a sense. Where does that sit? Like on your wrist or something? Or- so you'd, you'd have to clip it to your belt to or your put belt. it in your pocket. Okay. And the, the tube is in, inside of your body and you have to move it every, I think it's every couple of weeks. I've never actually used one, so I don't know the, the details of that. But I chose the injections because I've, I had a psychological right. hurdle with being attached to my disease and like physically having a symbol of my disease in my hand,
0: in my pocket, attached to me. Mm. You know I guess as well like being a young male who you know can is not intelligent but is old enough and responsible enough to look after it through your own injections it may be different for someone in a different scenario who Absolutely. doesn't have the ability yes yeah, who's spot on to administer exogenous insulin and and
1: to know how much and, and what I um, mean if you think about like a kid a young kid because you can get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a know one one year old you know young kids on pumps can be a lot easier to manage diabetes certainly yeah i mean imagine imagine having to inject your your baby mm. with insulin or then when they grow up they mm, have to inject. it's so tough which again is another reason why i was kind of blessed to be diagnosed at the age of 22 you know i, I didn't have to deal with all these things as a kid so anyway i, I decided to take the injections and i was given two types of insulin there was a basal insulin which is kind of like this background 24-hour dose of insulin that sits in your blood. And then there's a bolus insulin, which is the mealtime insulin or a short-acting insulin. So it's kind of like a more rapid onset, and then it's out of your system in about two, three, four. Five. And this is mimicking what would happen physiologically. Exactly right. It mimics yeah, normal physiological insulin. And it, the whole idea is that it responds to your blood glucose curve after a meal. as you eat, as you start to digest that meal, the insulin should match the blood glucose rise and it should match the the fall. So I was given this insulin and the first thing that I was told was that if you overdose on insulin, you can die. No questions about it. If you take too much insulin, especially at night before you go to sleep,
0: you are at serious risk of dying in your sleep. That's a warning that no doubt they have to give, but it's it's also one that's yeah. very confronting. Oh
1: man, that sort of, I mean, I guess it's a scare tactic to, to make me really manage it properly. But yeah, that was the first news where I was like, oh my goodness, like this disease is way more serious than I thought. I can die at any, any day if I overdose, I'm, you know, you can have seizures, you can end up in a coma or death. That's the short-term risk of insulin if you overdose. Then the long-term complications that I was told about was that if I don't manage my blood glucose properly... And it, and it stays in the high range for too long, like months, years, you know, decades, that you can have any of the, the three opathies, they're called. So like neuropathy, so you get this nerve nerve damage and you might have to have a foot removed or something. Neph- nephropathy, where your, your kidneys end up getting, you basically have kidney failure. And uh, retinopathy, where you have blindness. So, you know, they paint this picture like, and, and I, like you said, they have to do it. It's part, of, it's part of telling a newly diagnosed person they need to be aware of what can happen. But, but they end up painting a picture that's so scary, that's so disempowering, that makes you feel like life is well and truly over. Like, where is the positive there? Mm, like a victim. It's just, you feel like any day if you overdose, you could die. And if you don't manage it long-term, you're going to lose your feet, go blind and lose your kidneys. It, it, that's it, scary. It's so scary. It's so, so scary. So having, having sort of that, that milestone moment of exercise being a potential management tool was really empowering. So I, I realized that if, if I can exercise every day, maybe I can take less insulin. And that's exactly what, the, what happens. Because not only does exercise do what I said before about the glute 4 translocation and sort of sponge-like effect of the muscles, soaking glucose out of the blood, but it also makes you more insulin sensitive. So you need less insulin. For a given amount of carbohydrates. So I started this insulin therapy. And the first thing that happened was I gained a lot of weight. So I was 67 kilos when I was diagnosed and I quickly blew up to about 82 kilos. What's the, the sort of physiological explanation, do you think, for that? So, well, the weight loss was caused because the food I was eating wasn't getting into my cells. I was, I was excreting it. I was urinating it out. It was sitting in my bloodstream. So I was basically starving myself, even though I was eating. I was in a state of starvation, essentially. So what happens is the metabolism drops as your weight drops, and then all of a sudden you get this, you know, highly anabolic hormone. Insulin is, is the most anabolic hormone in the body,
0: more anabolic than testosterone. Which we'll talk about because we will talk about. You know, there's bodybuilders talking about it all over the internet, oh, and, and no doubt using it as a supplement for recreational nurses. It's crazy to think that. It's crazy, but. So I started taking
1: this hormone that you know was anabolic and all of a sudden eating a lot of food, storing nutrients now because insulin is doing its job, getting nutrients into the cells of the body. But the gap between my metabolism that had dropped over the year sort of before I was diagnosed to now where I'm eating a lot of food was quite a large gap. So I was way over consuming calories. I was in a, a, a super high surplus when compared to my actual basal, basal metabolic rate gained a lot of weight. This was tough too, because I was doing a lot of modeling at the time. That was my sole source of income. So when I was diagnosed, I was getting no work. Obviously I looked terrible. I was super underweight and my face changed color. I had like these gray sort of like look to my face, sunken eyes. Then I bounced back and inflated into a balloon. So I wasn't getting work then either. So I was kind of it just—I mean—I wasn't setting myself up for, for mm. being a good model, was I? You know, I was one second. I'm super underweight. Seesawing, now. Yeah, yeah. Seesawing, exactly. So, I really had to had to respect insulin at this point and figure out how much do I need? What's the optimal dose? What's the safe amount? And then I sort of implemented it from there.
0: So, talk me through the outside of the advice around insulin, and you'd sort of worked out at your own end, the effect that exercise can have on blood glucose control. What advice was given to you for other aspects of your life from, from health professionals or the doctor that diagnosed you or even your father around nutrition, stress, sleep, and, and how some of these other lifestyle aspects can affect your management of type 1 diabetes? So I've got to be honest,
1: there was not a lot of information out there. So you get diagnosed with diabetes and you're kind of sent off in a way to figure it out for yourself, you know, which is quite sad. I didn't know anyone with diabetes. I wasn't aware of anyone talking about it. So I really felt like I had to figure this out on my own, which is what made the next few years so fascinating was that it was this huge self-experiment where I was the scientist and the subject. And I get to test all of these different things on myself, all of these lifestyle factors. And I get to look at the objective data every day about my blood sugar and my insulin requirements. So it was really this cool experiment, right? I mean, I know it was an N equals one experiment, but it's still, it's, it's, it's fascinating insights into the human body. So I quickly realized that stress is absolutely enormous in this, in this equation, in that if you are overly stressed, not just you know, anxious thoughts, overtraining, so physical stresses, not sleeping, not recovering, that your insulin sensitivity goes down. You actually require more insulin the next day. So a sleepless night, the next day I needed more insulin. Simple as that. Many sleepless nights in a row, even worse. I'm I'm needing even more insulin. So sleep was a big factor. Stress was a big factor. Exercise I'd already figured out was phenomenal. Um, And then nutrition. That That was the one part where the advice I was given wasn't working in that I had gained weight. My blood sugars were okay, but I needed a lot of insulin. So my, my dose at the time was really, really high. I think I, was taking, I think I was taking about 60 units total over the course of the day at that point. Um, my blood sugar control, like I said, was okay, but I wasn't happy with the amount of insulin I was taking. So anyway, I kept sort of experimenting with all these lifestyle factors to figure out if I can find a lifestyle that is... Um, I guess healthy for my blood sugars maybe it's healthy for other things you know maybe it's just a
0: healthy lifestyle for me and you it's a healthy lifestyle for everyone well I think and, and to add to that you just talked about insulin sensitivity being affected, affected by stress and sleep nutrition we've spoken about type 1 and type 2 diabetes but perhaps it's a, it's a good time now before we jump into the dietary frameworks to talk about insulin resistance being a spectrum and why this conversation is not just relevant for someone with type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. So insulin resistance and insulin
1: sensitivity, like you said, is a spectrum. It can change day to day. It can change between individuals. It can change over your lifetime. It's something that we all need to be aware of because the choices we make every day. In, in some simple things that we don't even think about, like, like sleep, No one who, who would know that if you don't sleep well, that the next day, your pancreas it might have to produce a bit more insulin or you might be a little bit more insulin resistant. People don't know this sort of thing. But the whole message here is that insulin resistance is it's silent unless you are a diabetic who is testing their blood sugar every day and measuring the ratio of insulin required to metabolize carbohydrates. People don't know if they're insulin sensitive or insulin resistant. It's a silent disease and it can affect people with type 1. It can affect people with type 2. It can affect people who don't even have diabetes. You know, some days you might be more insulin sensitive than others. Some times of the day you might be more insulin sensitive. So, for example, after a workout for everybody, you improve your insulin sensitivity, whether you have diabetes or not, which means that the next meal you eat, if it contains carbohydrates, the amount of insulin you need to sort of get the job done. We'll be will be less, which is a good thing, which is fantastic, right? So we want to be as insulin sensitive as possible so that we can get glucose into the cells of the body, out of the bloodstream. So, you know, you just soak it up straight away. When you're insulin resistant, you're at risk of glucose building up in the bloodstream, which is obviously a long-term complication
0: and, and a dangerous yeah. thing. So, so you've, you've mentioned that, you know, stress, whether it's from activity or, you know, emotional, mental stress, or sleep these things can reduce your insulin sensitivity, sensitivity increase your insulin resistance mm. take me through what happens from a nutrition point of view what what foods affect insulin sensitivity insulin resistance and how how have you sort of pieced this together through your own journey with different dietary frameworks so
1: I was listening to the the diet recommended by the Diabetes Association, which was, i got to be honest, a pretty kind of standard Western diet in in a sense. It really did mimic the food pyramid that we were sort of taught in the 90s um, where there was nothing really restricted. You know, I could eat meat and fish and eggs and all those things and, of course, fruits and vegetables are good and all of that, but there was no clear boundaries about what you should and shouldn't do. It was kind of sitting on the fence. It's on the fence and it's also... You're basically told, eat whatever you want, like literally whatever you want. It can be processed. It can be Nutella. It can be chocolates, chips. It doesn't matter what you eat. As long as you dose your insulin correctly, you can eat whatever you want because those foods didn't cause, well, I'm doing this in inverted commas, those foods didn't cause your diabetes. So you can eat whatever you want. Just dose properly. Just give your insulin, figure out, figure out how much you need. So that's what I did. I ate a lot of processed
0: junk. Rubbish foods, and I I think just quickly, you said those foods didn't in in inverted commas cause your diabetes. You're talking about type one diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, but that's not really speaking to the fact that someone with type one diabetes can also develop insulin resistance. Mate, you nailed it. That is exactly right. So
1: by me eating these foods that didn't, you know, cause my type one diabetes, it's giving. It's basically saying there's nothing inherently wrong with these foods. Go for it. When really. After experimenting and diving deep into it, which I'll get to in a minute, there's a huge problem with eating those foods. And it's to do with insulin resistance. And it's to do with if you want to manage your diabetes properly, you want to be insulin sensitive. And those foods are not helping you to become insulin sensitive, which is, which is a massive point. So I was eating these foods. You know, actually, I might just go back a sec just to explain because I know there'll be a lot of people with type 1 diabetes wondering, you know, we know it's an autoimmune disease, but what actually triggers it? Yeah, that's a great point. I'll quickly just, just go into that because when I was told that we don't know what causes it and then I went and did my own research, I stumbled upon a lot of hypotheses and science pointing towards certain things. So in a nutshell, the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes is it's this perfect storm, right? There's no one thing that causes it, but there's multiple factors that all sort of align together, create this perfect storm, and then you get diagnosed. So one of the things is that you have a genetic predisposition. I didn't have any family history of it at all, but I obviously have some underlying gen- genetics there that were predisposed. The next thing is the gut. We know that pretty much all disease stems from the gut. And when you have a leaky gut or, or increased gut permeability, you, there's a risk that basically undigested or partially digested proteins can enter the gut, through the gut, into your bloodstream, and your immune system accidentally mistakes your own body's tissues for these proteins from your food that have entered your body and they, they go to kill off these proteins. And in the process, they accidentally attack anything that looks like these proteins. So your own tissue. That's right. So this is called molecular mimicry. I'm just going to put your dog, is this Giuseppe or? It's Giuseppe. Giuseppe. He's to, woken up from a nap. He's literally been sleeping on my lap for the last <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> okay. You can stay there. Good so your immune system Accidentally attacks, you know, the cells of your of your pancreas, the beta cells,
0: because they mimic proteins that are mm. entering entering the blood. So it's called molecular mimicry. Mm. And if the listeners listened to last week's episode with Clint Patterson, he spoke about molecular mimicry with regards to rheumatoid arthritis, which he yep. developed. And that was in that situation, it was the antibodies attacking the connective tissues and cartilage in the joints. Correct. Which just shows
1: that the way in which
0: the disease manifests is the same
1: but the the end disease that you get might be different so it depends on the mm-hmm. cells that your immune system end up killing off so you've got that part of it you've got you know viruses is a part of it as well viruses can mimic cells of the body i'd actually been in the amazon 3 months before my diagnosis and i got a terrible stomach bug which obviously changed my microbiome made me very very sick you know that that i'm sure played a part in it mm-hmm. also i'm not saying this is the cause but I had vaccines done before I went to South America, which also we know immunogenic, maybe it stimulates the immune system and, you know, there's all these factors. And then there's environmental triggers in the food we eat. And I found a link between gluten and uh, leaky gut or gut permeability, uh, where there's this subfraction called gliadin, which can induce, there's an enzyme or a gene called zonulin, which literally opens the gateways of your your gut. And I think that was discovered by a, a scientist called Alessio Fasano, who's like the the guru in celiac okay. disease. We'll put that in the show notes. And the reason I, I looked into that science is because there's actually a, a heavy overlap between celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. I believe it's, like, I, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think it's something like 20% of diabetics have wow. celiac disease. And I did not want celiac. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to remove gluten early on. And I've been gluten free since very, very early on in the picture. So, and then I mean, it's one more of trigger that we've, we've found in the research is, is um, the A1 beta casein protein, which is found in cow's milk is, you know, closely looks like the cells, of the beta cells of the pancreas. So the amount of cow's milk that I was not only having on my wheat beaks, but at uni we were told that the best post-workout thing you can do is to drink chocolate milk. Mm. You know, it stimulates mTOR and IGF-1 and all of these pathways that stimulate cancer, yeah. you know, they, they tell you to drink this so that you can build muscle and, and get your athletes to
0: recover. So we were literally told to tell the elite athletes to drink a chocolate move after like a gym set. So the idea there is that with that gut permeability and consuming that protein in the milk, it's making its way into your blood. Your blood is seeing it or creating antibodies to fight it. Yep. And in that process, it's very similar to the beta cells and ends up fighting the beta cells. That's it. Exactly right. So, I mean, that's, yeah, just to
1: go back that, that is, those are some triggers
0: that we we know of that can potentially cause type 1 diabetes. So whilst you can't put an exact finger on it, you, are aware that there's a sort of culmination of lifestyle risk factors that were a part of your life that could be potentially absolutely you know, responsible for for triggering it yeah.
1: And another thing that certainly played a role in the manifestation of this type one diabetes diagnosis was um, the fact that I was on antibiotics for about six months for my skin. I was taking doxycycline because I was doing a lot of modelling and and you know I wanted to I needed a source of income. It would help not having having acne and that certainly cleared it up but it probably also totally wiped out my microbiome and caused some damage there as well as i wasn't breastfed and i think you know the research does point in the direction that breastfed babies have less risk of autoimmune disease and and on that you know same note c section babies have a higher risk of autoimmune disease so all of those factors combined definitely played a role so then my next step after being diagnosed was you know the current diet i was t- was on wasn't working so i think i literally did a google search and i was like I think I wrote something like, what causes type 1 diabetes and how to reverse it, just to see what would come up. And the very first thing I found was this paleo approach to curing autoimmune disease, whereby basically the paleo folks are saying that grains are a trigger, gluten is a trigger maybe, dairy is a trigger. So we've got to remove all those and sort of eat how our ancestors ate which seems very logical and kind of makes sense if you think about it. You know, how did we evolve? What were we eating when we evolved? Maybe we should eat that. That's probably the healthiest thing. So that's when I discovered the paleo approach and I decided to implement this and see what would happen. And I've got to be honest, the results were phenomenal. And as we mentioned earlier, because I deviated away from that, you know, that middle moderation place towards This paleo side of the spectrum, where it's a low carb approach, so I'm consuming probably 50 to 150 grams of carbs a day. I'm eating fruits, some fruits, I'm eating a lot of vegetables, a lot of green vegetables, no grains, no legumes, no dairy, Mm. but a lot of meat, eggs, fish. That approach was really good for my blood sugars. So I noticed that my insulin requirements were starting to go down, my insulin sensitivity was starting to improve. All of a sudden, I've now found this, this is kind of like the second milestone in my triumph of, of managing diabetes. The first one was the exercise. Now I've realized, okay, nutrition is massive. So my insulin requirements came down by about 70%. That's amazing. It was a huge reduction. I actually, at the time, thought I was reversing diabetes. I just didn't realize I was improving insulin sensitivity. So basically, my weight started to come down, I started to lean out a little bit. I felt in control. The paleo diet was working, right? I had just enough carbs that I was kind of in this sweet spot where I was still eating healthy foods. My fat intake was was high, very high um, from all the animal products. I was just having nuts and seeds and avocado and all that sort of stuff. But the paleo diet was really working for me. And at this stage, I was like kind of obsessed with this, this solution that I'd found. And I was a massive proponent of the paleo diet because it was the first thing that gave me results. And you know what you do when you get results, you cling to it. Mm. So I really held on to that and and I didn't let go for eight years. I stuck to the paleo diet. I, I thought it was the best thing ever. I didn't try too many other things at that point over the, you know, those.
0: It found something that works and yep. was significantly better than the, a standard diet. Correct. And, and that's what I stuck to. And what did, what did the, the health professionals in your family around you think about that? Were they, were they supportive of that decision? My endocrinologist totally hated
1: the idea of going low carb. And I thought she was mad. I'm like, how can you argue with my results? Like, look at my blood results. They're great. My blood sugars are stable. My insulin requirements are going down. I'm managing my diabetes. Like, what do you, like, how can you, what's wrong with that? And she's saying you need to eat healthy carbohydrates at every meal. And you should be having like 45 to 60 grams of carbs per meal of whole grains and all these things. And I'm thinking, you don't know what you're talking about. I was doing this before and it wasn't working. This is working. Like, you know, I found a solution. My parents were very open, you know, they were seeing the results. So they were like, okay, this maybe does work. And, I've, I feel so bad, but I've influenced my family to change diets so many times over the years. Every time I implement something, they match me. You know, so my, you know, if my mom cooks a meal for us, I go over to her house for dinner. It was a paleo dinner, and you
0: know, she would leave off any grain. Following your journey, just literally. following my journey, okay? <laughs> the whole way through. So yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's that's the case often. I think where you know families they they learn off one another, and 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 if someone's sort of leading by example, and particularly. When you were measuring, your, you had so much insight mm. into how that move from a standard diet to a paleo diet had improved your health. Mm. It would have been very easy for your family to look at that and go, "Well, yeah, that that makes sense." Exactly, and that, in
1: a sense, although it's 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 kind of a, a good thing having these numbers, it can be a bad thing too because we can live and die by these numbers without actually understanding, in the scheme of things, what these numbers mean and represent. And I'll get to that later. When, when we come to the end of my keto experiment. But just because my insulin requirements were going down and just because my blood sugars were stable did not necessarily mean that I was being, you know, going to be my healthiest. And at the time, I didn't realize it. And after many, many years of experimenting, I finally figured out that these glycemic results aren't the be all end all, that there's a lot more to help. We'll, we'll get to that.
0: So, eight years you've you followed the paleo diet at what point did you decide or were you inspired to take a look at your nutrition and look at at changing things and moving away from the paleo diet so after like really getting a hold of diabetes in
1: in all these different senses that we spoke about before all the lifestyle factors i decided to start you know my brand called Drew's Daily Dose with with i have a website where i share my articles you know my instagram social media all of that sort of stuff and I'd been getting tons of questions from people who'd been following my journey, always asking questions about diet and this and that. And the one question that kept coming up was what do you think about a keto diet for people with diabetes, type 1, type 2, insulin resistance, um, all kinds of diabetes on the spectrum, what do you think of the keto diet? Well, the truth is I hadn't tried that yet. You know, I'd experimented with a lot of different things, but the keto was one thing I hadn't done. And if I, want to call, if I want to be able to call myself an expert or, or even slightly knowledgeable in the space, I need to have experimented myself and given it a go. So I thought, you know what? Here we go. I'm going to try this keto diet. Let's see how it goes for four months. Actually, at that point, I didn't even have a, a time frame on it. I thought, I'm just going to start it, see what happens. And were there,
0: were there type one diabetics in the community that were doing the keto diet that had good results who were, were influencing you on that? Huge.
1: There, there's a huge community of type 1 diabetics doing keto approach, excellent glycemic results, low insulin requirements. So it, was, it seemed appealing. You know? I really thought that this was something that could work and you know, the thousands of people are claiming it's, it's the best thing you can do. And there's a, a very famous type 1 diabetic um, doctor, who, Dr. Bernstein, who has a keto style approach to diabetes, who you know, has written a book and people talk about it all the time. So I, I thought, I better try this. I guess
0: on, on, on face value, when you just look at the the blood glucose right which we're going to go into you know it would have been appealing for you
1: to explore that it was there, there were two things that were appealing number one the blood glucose being very stable and flat line that that was appealing to me number two knowing that i can reduce my insulin even more that was really appealing less injections less dangers of hypos less you know going low it just seemed like a safer smarter approach so began my journey to the keto realm where i transitioned from this paleo diet where i was eating about 150 grams of carbs a day and i would always eat those carbs after my workouts because after a workout i'm most insulin sensitive and my muscles are like a sponge so on the paleo diet pretty much 80% of my carbs would be consumed after my workout i then moved to this keto diet where i increased my fat intake to 75% what kind of fats were what, what kind of foods were you getting those fats from animal sources mostly so I was having a lot of meat, chicken, fish, eggs. I'd put dairy back in because I no longer was going to be strict paleo anymore.
0: I was going to do a keto, so butter, oil. Wow! Even even though you knew that there was a potential link, I guess, with dairy causing or being a trigger for your type one diabetes, yeah. you still
1: still put it back put in. it back in. Yeah, it didn't feel good, and it felt weird. And I just thought, you know what?
0: I'm going to try this experiment and see how we go. I even put full fat dairy, full fat, which is the number one source of saturated fat. Well, dairy and cheese are the number one source of saturated fat in, in the Western diet.
1: But firstly, I didn't know that at the time. But what I did think at the time was there's nothing wrong with saturated fat. It's a myth. What's wrong with saturated fat? You can eat it as long as you, know, you burn it, you're good. So yeah, full fat dairy, full fat yogurt was back in there. So I increased my fats to 75% of total de- daily energy. My carbs were less than 10%. That's low. What does that look like? Less than 50 grams of carbs a day. So I was having, it was mainly coming from like greens and broccoli and tomatoes and carrots, That kind of those kind of vegetables. No starchy vegetables. Small portions though, right? Very, like, like you could have a big salad, but it would be like spinach leaves and yeah. celery and, you know, I'd put some almonds and, you know, seeds. But there's no, there's no potato, there's no. no quinoa. No, 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 no. Nothing like- I still wasn't doing any grains because yeah. I, I believed that grains and the lectins in grains had caused my leaky gut, which had triggered diabetes, so I kept grains out. Legumes, again, were demonised by the paleo community, so they were out. I was left eating salads with a lot of animal products and I was having an enormous amount of coconut oil and coconut butter. Yeah, how much you told me how much coconut oil? You I'm, had. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a jar of coconut oil. Every is that typical minutes. within the keto community? Well, yeah, because you're cooking with it. You're putting it on your food. Uh, look, obviously overdid it. It's disgusting in hindsight to think about the amount of saturated fat I was eating from coconut oil. I was literally having spoonfuls of coconut butter. I'd mm. go through a jar of coconut butter, which is 87, I think 87 or 90% saturated fat. Yeah. But when you're in that sort of mindset where you don't think fat's the enemy, mm. you think it's okay. More you think, the yeah, exactly. You think if some is good, more is better.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, and that was the mindset. So here's what happened. First two months of this ketogenic diet, unbelievable results. The best diabetes-related mm. results that
0: I'd ever seen. I think I messaged you at some point around the start of this journey yes. or through this journey. Do you remember that? <laughs>
1: Mate, I remember clearly. <laughs> you catalyzed pretty much the transition, man. So I was making a video two months in saying, basically saying, guys, ketogenic diet is the best thing in the world. I'm super ripped at the moment. I've lost a ton of body fat. I'm strong and muscular. I can go long hours without eating. My, my appetite's you know, well well satiated. My cognition is excellent. My blood sugars are flatlined. My insulin requirements are the lowest they've ever been. I can f- do intermittent fasting for like 20 hours without a problem. Like this is the diet for everyone. I figured it out, right? Was it that literally at that point, you messaged me on Instagram going, hey, mate, have you ever thought that that amount of saturated fat is bad for you and and then you like linked me to I think it was Michelle McMack um like a like a she's got a paper on type yeah type it was a paper on it. diabetes or insulin resistance and saturated fat. And yeah. then you sent me like lecture notes from a conference that she'd spoken at or something. Yeah and I remember seeing your message and going, oh this
0: vegan guy is trying to swing me. <laughs> Seriously I'm thinking <laughs> I'm busy thinking I was genuinely concerned because yes. I knew that you had diabetes. Well you knew something that I didn't know. And and I was thinking well hang on whilst there's some Benefits to the keto diet from a glucose control. What's happening? What's happening at a cellular level from an insulin resistance point of view, and and also are these foods doing the right thing by him long term? Yep. And and I
1: saw your message, and I thought this guy Simon doesn't understand diabetes. Fat doesn't cause diabetes, mate. It's it's sugar and carbs. Like, but I was like, okay, mate. Thanks for the concern. You know, I'm I'm enjoying my diet. You said I'll look into it, though. Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah. I looked at the lecture notes you sent me. I read the paper. My initial thought was. This can't be right. Like, hold on a second. Why haven't I seen any of this information before? And that was the first little bit of doubt that was, I was like, oh my goodness, have I potentially made things worse? And that you just literally planted that seed and you were super nice about it. You were calm. You didn't push me. You fed me the information I needed to do my own research. And I have to commend you for the way you did it because just by being so cool, calm and collected, you didn't push me the other direction. You actually made me think, hey, this guy might know what he's talking about. So I
0: looked at the paper. I looked at- um, Well, I I think as well, I knew I knew that you would read the science. Yeah. So I just thought, I'll, I'll let the science do the talking here. Wow. And it
1: did. So anyway, I made a video on Instagram pumping up a ketogenic diet saying the results are incredible. You know, I was wondering if anyone else found the same things and people are like, yeah, it's the best. You know, your blood sugars go low and- you- People coming out of the woodwork everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> Then a very interesting thing happened. So that two-month mark was when I was raving about it, about I'd say it was probably about the next one to two months. So that sort of two to four-month mark <laughs> was where everything changed, right? So I went from being the, having the lowest insulin requirements I've ever had with flatline blood sugars to seeing that my blood sugars were slowly starting to increase. Every morning I'd wake up and they're a little bit higher than the day before, a little bit higher than the day before, until I'm waking up consistently every day with blood sugars in the fifteen to twenty range. Wow. So this is overnight blood sugars are obviously
0: skyrocketed. And what's it's meant to be what? Sub eight? Was it did you say sub eight? Sub, sub six.
1: Sub six. Yeah. So like the normal range is about three point eight to six. Something like that. Or four to six. We'll call it four to six. So you're way, way. Too Mate, hot. I was waking up at fifteen to twenty. What does that feel like? So you just feel very lethargic and, and maybe a bit refluxy. Your vision can go a bit blurry, a heavy, tired. It's awful. It's a disgusting feeling. Anyway, so I'm waking up with these high blood sugars and I'm thinking, why are my sugars so high? I'm not eating anything. And obviously my liver had been dumping glucose into my bloodstream overnight through a process called gluconeogenesis where, I mean, it happens in everybody. Your liver is, is keeping your blood sugar stable overnight in that, in that, in that range, Right. But why all of a sudden was my liver pushing so much glucose out? So the question was, is my liver pushing so much glucose out or is my insulin not working anymore? So I decided to increase my insulin dose. My basal insulin is a 24-hour dose. Which is the the insulin that works overnight. Yeah, it's like a long-acting, yeah, yeah, overnight thing. So I was like, okay, I obviously need more basal insulin. So I increased my basal insulin. Next morning, wake up, still the same, increase my basal again. Next morning, wake up, still the same. I did this for about four weeks until my basal insulin was now well over the dose that I was taking. You know, when I was in that sort of paleo, when my sugars were were quite good, I'm taking tons of insulin, but my blood sugars are still elevated. It's literally, (laughs) it's literally my insulin stopped working. So I got, I kind of got into this like panic mode where I'm like, okay. What's my next go-to to mm-hmm. save the day? Well, I'll go back to exercise because that's what saved me the first time around when I figured that I had diabetes. Let's do that. So I'd exercise, no drop, minimal, minimal drop in, in, in uh, blood sugar compared to beforehand because my liver was still just dishing out this, this uh. So I do, do a workout and it, it would be slightly effective. It would drop a little bit, but not to the normal range. Then I'd go to eat a post-workout meal when I'm usually my most insulin-sensitive and at this point in time, because I was keto, the only amount of carbs that I could really eat in the, in the day, I could only get away with eating probably one banana per day okay. to stay with under that 50 grams and you per You were day. mainly having that post-workout. Post-workout. Yep. So I'd go to eat a banana post-workout where I'm meant to be insulin sens- sensitive. I'd give insulin that I thought would do the dose to, to get the banana metabolized. No effect. My blood sugars would spike. So I reached a point where basically, in a nutshell, my insulin – stopped working because I was so severely insulin resistant from this ketogenic diet for doing it for so long, such high amounts of fat that not only was I insulin resistant at my muscle cells, but I was insulin resistant at the site of my liver, which is why this gluconeogenesis was constantly pouring glucose into my blood. My insulin couldn't uh, sort of like attach to my liver to turn off that tap. So now I'm in a panic state. I've got high blood sugars all the time. I'm taking the most insulin I've ever taken. And I can't even eat carbohydrates. Yeah, so wow. so I'm, I'm literally having a Take panic Take a back. step backwards. Whoa, man, I think 10 steps back. I, I'm in panic mode. Have I just worsened my diabetes? Why am I insulin resistant? I'm, these are the thoughts that are going through my head. Why can I not even eat half a banana without having a spike in my blood sugar? You know, what's going on? And that's when I started to, again, went diving into the research and try to figure out what happened. And of course, your little Instagram message was echoing in my head. And I'm thinking wasn't the saturated fat? Like if all this amount of fat has made my diabetes the worst it's ever been, what if I go to the other end of the spectrum, take out all the saturated fat, wonder what will happen? So that's exactly what I did. I literally made a decision overnight to go strictly whole food, plant-based, very low fat, and just slowly reintroduce carbohydrates. Right. The reason I had to do it slowly was because I was so insulin resistant from this keto diet. If I were to just go to eat a couple hundred grams of carbs a day, my blood sugars would literally spike so high, it would be a disaster. So I had to cut the fats way back, cut out all animal products, stop cooking with oils,
0: slowly reintroduced carbs. Before we go into the transition to the plant based diet in detail, you're talking about the ketogenic diet and how it made you insulin resistant. What what is the underlying mechanism? that you have since researched that explains why that diet was, was causing insulin
1: resistance. So having made that connection between saturated fat intake or very, very high saturated fat diet and insulin resistance, or, or, or let's just say bad diabetes outcomes, I thought I'd discovered this like magic thing like that no one knew about. I was like, oh my God, I've just figured this out. Fats cause insulin resistance. That's what I'm, what's going on in my head. I then go look into the research, and it turns out uh, everyone's known about this for a long time, for decades and decades and decades. The science goes back to literally like the 1930s, where they're putting you know people with diabetes on these high carb, very low fat diets, and they're improving their insulin sensitivity, they're improving their glucose tolerance. They've known about it for ages, and 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 then I go to look online to see sort of what else is out there, and I notice that all these you know these doctors, Michelle McMack and Doctor. Garth Davis, Neil Barnard, the boys at Mastering Diabetes, Robbie and Cyrus, they've all been saying this for so long. They've all been doing this and the information is out there. So pretty much what the science shows, and, and it's documented in the evidence, is that when you get lipids or fat from, from your diet that becomes it's like an ectopic fat buildup. So basically these lipids enter cells they're not meant to be in they cause insulin resistance. They cause dysfunctional, dysfunctional insulin signaling. They cause the so if insulin is, it's like a lock and key the way it works. So insulin is this key that when it goes into the lock, it will open the gateway for glucose to enter the cell. The key keeps getting getting jammed, right? They say it's
0: like gummed up the lock. There's a whole lot of signaling and mechanisms that go on in there, but that's the easiest way.
1: That's a, yeah, fairly to describe, describe it.
0: Yeah, but but the the message is is that.
1: When these lipids are getting into tissues that they're not meant to be in, which are muscle cells and liver cells, you become insulin resistant and you, become, you get this glucose intolerance or carbohydrate intolerance, right? So if I, had been, if I spent four months eating 75% of my energy from lipids, what if I don't burn them all? Where are they going? And it turns out that's exactly where they're going, intramyocellular lipids or into the muscle cells and intrahepatic lipids into the liver cells. So my first thought then was, okay, so let's say I've sort of like clogged up my cells with, with lipids. What's the best way to get rid of that? Well, number one, let's take lipids out of the diet for a while and let's exercise a lot and hopefully just burn through these things, right? And we'll see what happens. And that's exactly what happened. So
0: I removed the fat. Had you had any blood tests throughout this? Like at the stage of of paleo or keto?
1: Yes, yes. i had done, because as part of some, you know, when you live with type 1 diabetes, you're meant to be getting sort of blood tests every three months because you want that HbA1c that gives you that indication of your three month average blood sugar, but you also get other things done as well. So I'd had blood tests for eight years, very frequently, right? Over the eight years, consistently I'd had very abnormal liver function tests, very abnormal. Like the kind of, red numbers where my doctors were seriously concerned i'd also had cholesterol reading during my keto phase that was very elevated it was, it was my, my total cholesterol was 6.4 gosh the break i can't remember the breakdown I, I can send you a screenshot later and maybe we can put that up there but it, it, it wasn't too pretty right and so i had high cholesterol and did the doctor did they n- discuss your cholesterol levels with you yeah they wanted to put me on a statin wow and i'm and, and, um, 25 years old i'm not going to statin like i'm going to fix this with diet and exercise which is what i ended up doing but yeah so i had the high cholesterol and the very abnormal liver functions and a few other markers that were abnormal which were consistently abnormal for the eight years i then transitioned to this whole food plant-based diet and i like i said slowly reintroduced carbohydrates i didn't want to overdo it and the result was so much more rapid than i thought that it blew me away like i was Totally shocked. So the first thing I started to notice was every night I was waking up with a low blood sugar, sort of the opposite of what was happening before. And I have to go to the fridge and eat something, like eat some food, get some glucose. And that was despite eating a lot of carbohydrates. Yes. So so my sensitivity was starting to come back. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna reduce my basal dose, you know, the next night and hopefully not have a low. So I'd reduce it a couple of units, have another low, do it the next night, another low, reduce it again, another low. I woke up. The first 10 nights of my transition, I had a low every single night. I ended up reducing my basal insulin by at least 10 units in the first 10 days, okay? Big, big drop in basal insulin very rapidly. That was an indication of a couple of things. Firstly, my insulin sensitivity is coming back. My insulin is actually starting to work again, and my liver is able to stop pushing all this glucose out overnight, right? So it was really, again, this was a triumphant moment, super empowering, felt like I was getting control back. Then I started to increase my carbs. And the tricky thing with this is because I was paleo for eight years, I hadn't eaten a grain or a legume
0: in eight years. And they were almost sort of demonized by that community. Totally.
1: I had a fear. I had, I had, a, I had a, a fear of carbohydrates and insulin because they'd been demonized by, by that community and i demonized them myself because I thought, like they all think, that insulin is, is fat storage, mm-hmm. you know, you know, this hormone that's not good. We want it to be as low as possible. And that glucose and carbohydrates is the problem because that triggers, you know, spikes in blood sugar. Now, it is true that carbohydrates can spike your blood sugar. That is true. But that does not mean that they are the cause of diabetes or insulin resistance. I mean, it is so, we have totally messed this up. And a lot of keto and low-carb paleo advocates demonize carbs and take them out of the diet because it kind of like logically makes sense. It's like, if you have an intolerance to carbohydrates because you have diabetes or insulin resistance, if you just take the carbs out of your diet, then you're going to stop spiking your blood sugar and you're going to have these flat lines and you're all good. And that looks like an improvement. It looks like an improvement. It's like your blood sugars are stable. You, you need less insulin because not having as much carbs. So well, are an effect, it is an improvement. It not, not looks like, it actually is, it is an improvement. Absolutely is. It is a potential solution. There's no doubt about that. We, let's make that very clear. A low-carb ketogenic diet is a potential solution because it does manage the symptoms. But that is the key. It manages the symptoms like a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid solution. It manages the symptoms. It does not address the underlying cause. So the cause of the insulin resistance is this fat accumulation in cells that it's not meant to be in. Then you go and eat half a banana like I did, and all of a sudden your blood sugar shoots up. You blame the banana. Well, banana made my blood sugar go up. Carbs are bad. No. That is absolutely incorrect because now I've realized I'm eating more carbs than I've ever eaten since being diagnosed. I've increased my carbs from 50 grams a day or less when I was keto to 400 now as a whole food plant-based and my insulin requirements have basically stayed the same.
0: Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. Plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. I think it's it's worth us noting as well that there might be people listening going, Well, if you can get that glucose control on a ketogenic diet and you do the ketogenic diet for life and you're not reintroducing carbohydrates then isn't that as good as what you're talking about in terms of managing or or reversing the insulin resistance and then being able to eat carbohydrates but correct me if i'm wrong what what i'm hearing is that you wanted to be able to add these healthful carbohydrate food groups back into your diet for other reasons beyond the actual management of diabetes 100%
1: so If you can stick to a ketogenic diet for your whole life and you're happy to never eat carbohydrates again, you can expect fantastic blood sugar levels and low insulin requirements. But that says nothing about your insulin sensitivity. Okay, for example, my ratio of insulin to carbohydrates when I was keto was one unit of insulin would allow me to eat six grams of carbs. Okay. Now on a plant-based diet, high carb, low fat, one unit, of, one unit of insulin can, can allow me to eat 20 to 30 grams of carbs. Massive improvement. Yeah, wow. That, 400% improvement. Mate, that right there is the true indication of insulin sensitivity. So what I'm trying to say is, and everyone lean in for this part because this, this is the message. If you achieve low or, or normal blood sugar levels and normal or low insulin levels in the absence of carbohydrates, you have not necessarily reversed insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes. If you can achieve normal blood sugar control, normal insulin levels in the presence of an abundance of carbohydrates, that is the true reversal of insulin resistance. It's all about how your body responds to a glucose challenge, right? So if you're not eating glucose or carbohydrates on a keto diet, you're managing the symptoms of diabetes. It looks like you're doing a good job, which you are, but you're not addressing the underlying cause, you still likely have impaired glucose tolerance and impaired insulin sensitivity. So after such, so you were actually the guy who, who made me think, well, because I saw you, you were talking about the blue zones and you were pointing me in the direction about all these epidemiological studies and these populations who have the lowest rates of diabetes, they're totally thriving and they're eating like 80% of their diet from carbs. So I was thinking, well, if I'm doing the opposite of what they're doing and they're the longest living, healthiest populations, is what I'm doing healthy on a keto diet?
0: Probably not. Yeah. It's like, the, it's the bigger picture outside of That's the it. blood glucose control. Exactly. What, what am I doing in terms of dese- um, avoidance of other chronic diseases and maximizing my longevity and quality of life? That's it.
1: We, we get so myopic when, we're, when we have a disease like diabetes, because we're living and dying by these numbers. We think that everything is blood sugar control, when really health is so much deeper than that. So- When you're on a keto diet, your fiber intake is unbelievably low. Your microbiome health and the diversity of plants you're eating is unbelievably low. Like I'd like to see a keto person do your little plant-proof 40 challenge and actually succeed in that. Because it's difficult. You know, it's tough. Man, you're cutting out a huge food group, you know? So if I'm cutting out the healthiest foods known to human history just to achieve stable blood sugars, what what is it? What am I sacrificing? What's the trade-off? And I wanted to find out if I could achieve the same control. On a plant-based diet. And within, like I said, the first two weeks, phenomenal results, really, really high improvement in sensitivity, added all these foods back in. And yeah, I mean, right now as we speak, it's been four months and that's early days. I understand that. And people are going to be like, man, it's only four months. Like, you know, you, you got to wait long-term. Let's see what happens. But I did keto for four months. And at this same point in my keto diet, my results were so bad. So- if
0: you're comparing the time frame of keto and, and plant-based already, the results are unbelievable. And what specifically from a, a blood work point of view, how, how have other things changed, other markers like cholesterol and things like that? So my cholesterol had a greater than 50% reduction.
1: So it went from 6.4 to 3.6, which- That's huge you know, in oh, four months. Hey, That's massive. That's a big change. And then this one's the one that blew me away. So like I said before, I had- Abnormal liver function tests every single blood test for eight years. After four months on a plant based diet, I had my first ever normal liver function tests. Blown away. Doctors could not actually believe it. And I asked a few doctors what they think was the problem. And they thought I did have some kind of like non alcoholic fatty liver disease or just that ectopic lipid buildup in in my my liver cells from just super high amounts of fat for so many years and, and just. Not eating carbohydrates, so th- those results and other things too. There were other stuff, you know, other biomarkers that improved, which I, you know, can't remember off the top of my head. But in a nutshell, my blood tests used to come back looking very much in the red, to now being quite normal. So so relieved, so empowering. I, I I feel so, in a sense, guilty for not guilty. I don't want to use the word guilty because there are people doing great on a keto diet, but I have recommended the keto diet claiming that it improves insulin sensitivity when it, that's not the case. It reduces insulin requirements, but not insulin sensitivity. So,
0: you know, it's been, it's been a journey. And I think you, you spoke about the epidemiology, the studies before. So, you know, we've got epidemiology, we've got studies of multiple cohorts where they look at subjects' diets and they put them on scale from, you know, the most meat-heaviest diets to the most plant-based diets and time and time again, we see that people that are sticking towards whole food, not refined food, not 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 the junk food type mm. of vegan diet, a whole food diet. I just want to make it clear that's what these studies are showing in terms of people having less insulin resistance and less incidence of type two diabetes. Yeah, and and the great thing is, you know, one of the other complications of diabetes is cardiovascular disease, mm. and we've got some some powerful randomized controlled trials showing that. Low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diets can halt and even reverse, in some cases, cardiovascular disease. Yeah. You know, studies by Dr. Dean Ornish, Dr. Coldwell, Esselstein, which I'll also put in the show notes. So when you add all of that up, the fact that you're getting, you're, you're able to, to actually tolerate more carbohydrates. Yes. So you're, you know, to affect your, your glucose and your insulin, your management's better there, but then you're also now eating in a way which lines up with longevity and disease avoidance of of multiple diseases, but our, our leading cause of death, cardiovascular disease.
1: And and like you said, having diabetes is, is in itself a risk factor for so many comorbidities. Why wouldn't you want to eat in a way that can reduce them all? and manage your blood sugars. Like it just, sometimes a complex problem can have a simple solution. And that's what I feel like that i personally discovered having made this transition is that diabetes is bloody complex. It is a tricky disease, but the solution is a lot easier than you think, and it doesn't have to be restrictive to the point where you can't eat carbohydrates. You know, we've demonized the wrong thing. We've demonized insulin as being this fat storage hormone. We're making all these mistakes and claiming that that, you know, insulin and carbs are, 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 are the culprits for, for diabetes and obesity and all this stuff when the science just does not align with that. In fact, it says the opposite. And all of the evidence shows that, I mean, not all, but there's a lot of evidence showing that a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based approach improves insulin sensitivity. It's not just my personal mm. experience. And there's even,
0: I mean, Neil Barnard's randomized controlled trial where he compared it to the standard diabetic association diet. And and subjects who did the low-fat plant-based diet performed significantly better. These were subjects with type two diabetes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, people are doing it. People have been speaking about it for a long time. For some reason, we think that, I mean, people think that a plant-based diet is restrictive when I've never eaten such an abundance of foods in my life. You know, it's it's that's it's part of this transition. There's been so many things that I've been so proud of and happy with. You know, my blood results are great, and my, my diabetes management. There are so many other things that have come about from this diet in that I've rediscovered the joy of eating healthy
0: carbohydrate foods. Like, hey, how good is a sweet potato? That's amazing. I think you're know you, and- you you're talking to something that's so important because I think there be so many people out there that, that had this belief instilled in them that carbohydrates are bad. They, they, they're bad for, for their sugar. They're bad for blood glucose. They make us fat. And it's so far from the truth, so far and, and it's, it's it's crazy, and it's it's really a problem with just the fact. I think that carbohydrates is such an umbrella term, it covers everything from a lollipop to you know, a handful of berries. Yep, exactly right. We need to make that distinction.
1: And if you look, if you actually look at the science, so one of the arguments that the keto advocates sort of speak about is that there's a process called de novo lipogenesis, where your body turns carbohydrate or non-lipid sources of of fuel into fat and stores it, right? De novo lipogenesis, the creation of lipids from new products, right? So the studies literally say the opposite of of what they're they're claiming. They're claiming that de novo lipogenesis is the thing that makes us fat and stores lipids. But if you look at these overfeeding, so these carbohydrate studies where they overfeed people with carbohydrates and they actually trace each, so that there's a special tracer on the glucose molecule, so they can see where it ends up in what cells of the body. It is such a small percentage that actually gets turned into fat. I think, I mean, I'm sure you'll link this study as well. In the study that I'm thinking of, it was something like 3
0: to 5% of overfeeding of carbohydrates actually turns to lipids. Something that Neil Barnard talks a lot about. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that it's harder to turn a carbohydrate molecule into fat yeah. to store rather than excessive fat, yeah. dietary
1: fat. Well, fat comes in its form that it wants to be stored as, you know, your body doesn't convert it. Like there's an energy cost to even converting a carbohydrate molecule to a fat molecule, so our bodies don't want to be just storing carbs as fat. We want to use them and burn them, and and the body does that really, really well if you're insulin sensitive. You know, that's the whole point is that we want to get to a point in our lives where we can tolerate glucose and we can still eat fats. You don't have to have no fat, but you have healthy, whole food, plant based fats, avocados, nuts, seeds, fats in a form that our bodies can tolerate mm-hmm. and and to an extent that's not going to Cause all, all of this lipid
0: buildup in cells. Yeah, it's an important point because, again, on the on the other side, we don't want to completely demonize fat because there's fat soluble vitamins and you know A, D, E, and K. There's essential fats, you know, your omega three. So getting some fats into your diet is still incredibly important, even on a low fat diet. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so before we we sort of roll into more of the practical side sides of things and and how you transitioned what types of foods you're eating on a day-to-day basis. Let's let's just tie off on the keto diet. So to summarize, keto diet can certainly be advantageous when it comes to managing blood glucose. However, there are various things that people should be aware of in terms of creation of insulin resistance, inability to tolerate healthful food groups, what effects can that have in terms of other disease occurrence or avoidance and longevity. Are there any other sort of misconceptions or things that you've come across that perhaps you previously believed but have have read science since then and and have come to understand things in a different manner?
1: Yeah, definitely. The the I mean I touched on this before, but the idea that insulin is a fat storage hormone is just blatantly overstating the properties of insulin. Insulin's primary purpose is to regulate glucose metabolism. It's a blood sugar regulator. It's not a fat storer. Yes, it does. One of its properties is lipogenesis. It is lipogenic or, or does create fat storage. That is true in, th- you know, in theory, but you have to put it into context. So if, you're, if your insulin levels are in the normal physiological range, you're not in just fat storing mode. It's just not true. In particular, if your insulin is normal. And you're eating carbohydrates, but your lipid intake or fat intake is low. You're not going to turn sugars into fats. It doesn't just do that. If you are in in sort of somewhere in the middle, which is really is kind of that no man's land where you're eating, I guess what you would call the standard, uh, you know, ADA diet. That's going to have high amount of carbs, moderate moderate to high carbs, moderate to high, high fat, moderate to high protein, mm-hmm. moderate to high calories. Everything's kind of up there. Yes, then insulin can you know, cause those lipids to be stored. But I mean, we just need to really drop the idea that if you have any insulin floating around, you're going to become fat. It's total rubbish. Because, you know, there are guys, you know, the guys in America, Robbie and, and, and Cyrus. From Mastering Diabetes. Yeah. And these guys are eating 700 to 1000 grams of carbohydrates a day. And they are the furthest things from fat. These guys are not fat. Their insulin sensitivity is incredible. You know, they keep their fats very low. I think, I don't want to speak for them, but it's around that sort of like 10% of uh, daily calories. They're eating all the carbs in the world. They're not getting fat. It's just it's just not how insulin works. So just wanted
0: to kind of smash that myth right there. And what about the idea that a, a ketogenic diet is this fat burning diet? You know, we often hear about it. You get into ketosis and you're burning fat. And I think that's a real attractive Sort of proposition, so to speak, for for someone who comes across the marketing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people out there do want to achieve a healthy body weight, and that can seem that can sort of lure people in. Yeah, is there is there more to it than this uh, this burning of fat sort of mentality?
1: Yeah, there, there's no doubt that
0: this high fat ketogenic
1: diet does change your primary fuel burning to a fat sort of burning you know, your fuel source becomes fat. That is true, right? You're eating fat, you're burning fat as primarily and you're storing fat primarily. So your currency has changed. You're now a, a fat burner, right? Problem is you are losing metabolic flexibility. So you're basically trading off the ability to tolerate almost any carbohydrates to be in, you know, a good fat burner. But just because you're a fat burner doesn't mean you're just going to burn through all your body fat because you're still eating dietary fat. Which you're gonna hopefully be burning. But also if you overdo your calories or, or or enter a caloric surplus, even on a ketogenic diet when insulin's low and you're meant to be in this fat-burning mode, if you're in a surplus, you're gonna quite easily store those calories as fat. So I wonder if maybe part of the benefit is that these people are just literally eating in a calorie deficit. You know, this diet's helping them to achieve some weight loss and they're burning and losing fat. But you can lose fat using any diet if you're in a deficit. So I don't think mm. that the focus should be on, you know, get into a ketosis, eat all the fats you want and burn all the fat you want. I just think it's, we, we need to look at it a bit more broadly and understand that calories still do matter and that if you overdo a ketogenic diet, consume too many calories, you can still get fat. Even if you're in fat-burning mode, you can still get fat. And then the, 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 probably the worst part is then if you decide to reintroduce carbohydrates, then you're in big trouble. Because you're now insulin resistant to a degree or, or you have an impaired glucose tolerance then you just throw these carbs back in, but you don't drop your fats, you end up in no man's land where we were talking before, that sort of like moderation zone, which can be problematic.
0: Yeah. I think that distinguishing that difference between the burning of dietary fat versus the burning of stored fat is the big one. Yeah. Right? Yep. And that you're not going to be burning stored fat until you're depriving the body of energy through food to the point where it needs to use stored energy to meet your energy requirements for the day. Yeah. And and as you said, that can be achieved with with any plethora of diets. But and I think it's it's also probably wise for us to mention here that, you know, being overweight or obese is is a risk factor for a number of chronic diseases. So, you know, I'm sort of in this this mindset, where if you lose weight doing something and something works for you, like the keto diet or whatnot, then that's great. That's fantastic, and it's a fantastic step towards bettering your health and managing your overall chronic disease risk. But what we're talking about is the potential of that not being the ideal long-term solution. You know, for every sort of number of reasons that we've gone over yeah, so far.
1: Exactly right. I think as a short-term uh, solution for rapid weight loss, you want to get lean, you want to lose some body fat, the ketogenic diet is going to be a good way to achieve a calorie deficit. It is going to help you to burn fat, it might help you, you know, see these these glycemic outcomes that look very appealing. But we
0: need to think long term. If you can't stick to it forever, what are you going to do? I think one of the biggest things as well with the keto diet, you talked about people are probably in a calorie deficit, right? We know from trials, if you calorie match a low, low-carb diet with a high-carb diet, people, their weight loss is the same. Yep. But why I think the ketogenic diet does, it does get weight loss results. Let's let's not try and deny that. People listening have probably had great weight loss results on keto diet. People listening have probably had great weight loss results on a whole food plant-based. But regarding the ketogenic diet, when you make that initial transition and you remove carbohydrates, you remove almost two kilograms through weight, through carbohydrates that are stored as glycogen and the water that is attached to them, mm-hmm. right? And that's incredibly motivating mm. because when you make that change and in that first week, two kilos, right? For the average, for someone like our size, you're, you're incredibly motivated to stay on track. And I think having that really quick success is a, re, it's a sticky point for the ketogenic diet. And it's a, it's, a, it's a big win for that type of diet in terms of motivating people to, to stay on the program.
1: I, I agree. I think we, we need to be more specific about what weight we're losing. And that body composition actually really does matter here. We're not just talking about losing fat. Like what, is, what tissue are we losing? And, and I think, like you said, a lot of people have this like depletion of glycogen initially. Lose some water, and you feel pretty damn good when you do that if you've been overweight for a while. And like I said, the sort of mistake that I made in my first experiments with, you know, when I went paleo was clinging to the first solution that I discovered and not really understanding that what if there's multiple solutions to a problem? We, we, we mentioned it before that a- any deviation from that moderation, sort of in the middle, where you're kind of moderate in all macronutrients to either end of the spectrum can get you great results. But what we need to encourage people to do, and what I like to tell people to do is you need to be willing to, to do the self experimentation to figure out what actually works. You know, I had like, I had fantastic initial results on a keto diet. You know, I was very lean. All of those biomarkers seemed great. Right. If I didn't have diabetes and I didn't have the insights into my blood sugar levels and my insulin resistance,
0: I would probably still be keto today. Because I wouldn't have known that I was insulin resistant. So do you think there'd be people walking around who are doing the ketogenic diet who are unaware of an underlying insulin resistance that has been brewing? 100%. That's what I'm worried about.
1: My concern is there are millions of people just like me who get these rapid short-term results, felt great, looked great, but they have no idea that there's this silent, silent you know, state of insulin resistance occurring in their body and in their cells, that you know potentially they have the same cholesterol results that I had when I was keto, high cholesterol.
0: They're leaving out all these healthy food groups, and there's no epidemiology studies to suggest that that those blood test results and the de- development of insulin resistance or the inclusion of such foods are promoting longevity. Absolutely, which is dangerous in itself.
1: And then another concern I have is that. These people will say, well, I had my, my blood tests done. My fasting insulin levels are very low. My blood glucose is excellent. My doctor thinks this is fantastic. I'm off my medications, which is great. I'm happy for you. If, that's, if you've achieved that and you feel like you can avoid the serious long-term complications of diabetes, my hat is off to you. If you can keep that up for the rest of your life, fantastic. I want the best for you. I don't want you to, to go through these disgusting complications of diabetes. They are horrendous, so scary. The problem is, is that those markers, low insulin levels and flatline blood sugars say nothing about your insulin sensitivity, okay? So I, I truly believe, and I might be wrong, but we'll find out in the years to come when the research eventually does come out, but I truly believe that there is probably a large population of ketogenic dieters who are walking around day to day in a state of impaired carbohydrate or glucose tolerance and in a state of insulin resistance. They don't know about it because they don't have to test for these things and and the Honestly, the, the blood tests don't tell you these things. The Doctors don't know. The real test is, is how your body responds to a glucose challenge, whether it's an OGT, t- oral glucose tolerance test, or even just a, a carbohydrate load or carbohydrate feed. That is the true test
0: of which, which your insulin's working. Which is, I, I need to bring this up because I don't know if you sent me the link or someone sent me the link, but I often go to the... Ketogenic proponents' websites, and you know, we talk about their research and whatnot. And and I read their blogs because it helps to understand where they're coming from, you know, and it it may open my eyes to something that I haven't been thinking of. But I have read a few times where they talk about how you can sort of cheat your way through those oral glucose tests. Have you seen that?
1: I have. So they recommend that you eat a high carb low-fat diet for about five days leading up to the OGTT to pass the test. But why? what's, what's the rationale well, around that? Well, well, their rationale is that they're thinking about different mechanisms. So their rationale is that the mechanism of what, what I'm calling insulin resistance or glucose intolerance is like an enzyme, enzymatic uh, mechanism, whereby they just don't have the enzymes to, to metabolize glucose. So here's what I want to say to that mechanisms aside whether it's enzymes whether it's insulin resistance whether there's hundreds of other mechanisms that are proposed there's one common denominator your glucose tolerance is impaired I don't care what the mechanism is you can't eat carbohydrates so and that's the true test of insulin resistance 100% that is the test so when i see guys the guys from mastering diabetes who are putting these people with type 2 diabetes and clinically di- diagnosed insulin resistance on a whole food, plant-based diet, which is low in fat, they are reversing insulin resistance. They are reversing type 2 diabetes. They're coming off all the medications. They're eating an abundance of food. It's not a restrictive diet. If you think the only thing you're restricting is animal products, I mean, what a solution. Like That's, that's unbelievably empowering to think that you don't have to restrict to a state of ketosis to achieve these outcomes. You can actually do it on the total opposite end of the spectrum. Get the same results that the keto guys are getting in terms of their their glycemic markers, and you get to eat all the most delicious, healthy foods that the longest living populations consume. And that's for me. That was a turning point for me, where I was like, uh, the, the plant based, you know, whole food plant based diet is seems to be right now. I know I'm four months in, the ultimate solution to this problem. It really is. It, it addresses the cause of insulin resistance,
0: and it gives you those excellent outcomes. So. And I mean, you, you spoke just before about us, you know, as a population, the world, seeing the results that are to come in the future years of this ketogenic epidemic, for lack of better words there to describe it. That's what gets me. It's that there's no long-term data. So if you were to commit to a ketogenic diet on, for the long term, you are essentially acting as a guinea pig. Mm. You know you, you, you are you're not following the masses of, of science that we have around healthy eating for the long term.
1: Yeah. And that was a worry for me too, was that I'm, while I'm a huge proponent of self-experimentation, I felt a little bit upset at myself for recommending other people with diabetes to try the ketogenic diet. See, I've been consulting it as a diabetes educator. One thing I didn't mention is after I got diagnosed, I went back to uni and I, I did a post-grad certificate in diabetes education and management. And I, I'm not a credentialed diabetes educator, but I, I got my degree and I've been trying to help people with type 1, type 2, all kinds of you know insulin resistance. And I have advocated for keto approach to improve glycemic outcomes. And I feel responsible to, to tell these people that if you're going to start a ketogenic diet, you can expect some great outcomes, but there are definitely long-term risks that aren't spoken about enough. And I wish that I had come to this conclusion earlier before I recommended this to other people, just to know the risks. Anytime you start a new diet, what are the risks? Especially like you just said, the overwhelming weight of evidence that points to high amounts of saturated fat being problematic and, and increasing your risk of all these diseases it just doesn't feel good for me to then tell people to go eat a high saturated fat diet because your diabetes might improve.
0: You know, I, I think it's, it's to be commended that you're able to put your hand up and, and, and say, you know, I was doing that and advising that, but I've since learned this, this and this. And it sort of it's really speaks to the fact that you're evidence-based, you know, you're, you've had your own journey, but the advice that you're giving to people is the very best of advice that you have at the time. Correct. You know, you're not. You, you haven't changed your personal life, and still giving the ketogenic advice, which some you know it, that could, in many ways, be easier for you to do because it it doesn't look like you're going back against your word or your advice. Yeah. So, you know, I I think that's commended the level of transparency that you yeah that you have there. Um, in terms of practic- practically speaking, right? What do you eat on a day to day basis? Are there any Things that type one diabetics or people with type two diabetes need to consider in particular that we haven't spoken about with regards to a plant based diet, and what about someone who's looking to transition from either a middle ground or a high fat diet to a plant based diet that has insulin resistance? So the
1: first thing to be aware of is that you're definitely going to be coming from a, from a place of slightly impaired glucose tolerance so to just throw carbs back into your diet in the hundreds of grams per day and not reduce your fat would be a big mistake so we've really got to be aware that if and this applies to the ketogenic diet too it's if your fats are high your carbs are going to be low if your carbs are high your fats are going to be low okay so that that seesaw is key to understand so what i personally did was i cut the fats out of my diet stopped cooking with oil stopped eating coconut oil stopped all the animal products I ate a ton of, of vegetables, some starchy vegetables, and I had to add grains and legumes back in for the first time in eight years, which was f- quite frightening. Keep in mind, I was scared of carbohydrates at this point because I'd noticed that just the bite of a banana would spike my blood sugars. So, what's going to happen if I eat a bowl of quinoa and beans or, or you know, a sweet potato or whatever? So, I had to, be, I had to respect these carbohydrates in the beginning, but my insulin sensitivity came back very, very fast. And I just kind of drip feed day by day, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, until, like I mentioned, I've increased my carbs to almost 400 grams. My fats are pretty low now. I'd say my macronutrient ratios are probably about 60% carbohydrates, 20% protein,
0: 20% fat. It's pretty similar to myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I probably could drop the fats lower and get some more insulin sensitivity, but I quite enjoy my whole food, plant-based fat foods, so I'm going to keep them in there. But I think I think people just need to be aware that. To go from one extreme to the other overnight is probably not the best thing either. That we, There's going to be a transition phase and that if you do have some you know, blood markers or, or, or your blood sugars don't respond the way you want to initially, you've just got to be patient. They will come around when you make your way to the other end of the spectrum. It's just quite a long walk to get there. You know, you've just got to take your time. You've, you've got to really trust the process that you, it will sort itself out. You will clear these zippers out of your cells. You will resensitize yourself to insulin. And eventually you can go to the other end of the spectrum where you're eating carbohydrate-rich food, abundant, you know, diverse array of them. And, and you don't have to worry about having glucose spikes and you don't have to worry about having huge
0: insulin spikes because your insulin sensitivity will improve and your glucose tolerance will come back. And obviously you're posting information about this on social media and we'll, we'll link you through on the show notes. Where else can people, would you recommend people go to if they're wanting a bit of a helping hand with that transition?
1: Well, I mean... Honestly, the guys at Mastering Diabetes are total experts in this field. They're elite. They, they really are elite. They are so across the science. I mean, Cyrus, is he's a PhD in biochemistry. Both of them have type 1 diabetes. They've had it for like, I think like 19, 20 years or something, both on a very low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet. Their results that they've got in themselves, in their own diabetes management, and in the people that they treat through their program. Is it's almost hard to believe. I remember years ago on social media, Robbie reached out to me, the guy from Asking diabetes, and he was like, he basically said, you know, this is so interesting that you're getting good results on a high fat diet, and, you know, I'm getting good results on a high carb diet. Have you ever thought about trying, you know, my approach? And I just could not get my head around it. It just didn't make sense to me. You know, I almost didn't believe him. His, his HbA1c is so good, his control is unbelievable, his, his, his insulin to carb ratio was off the charts. And I I just didn't believe him. I was like, there's no way he's got to be doing something else. And then, you know, obviously, I finally got there eight
0: years later. Robbie, if you're listening, mate, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Robbie Robbie and Cyrus are on the show, I think, in about four weeks. Oh, awesome. That'll be a good follow-up to this um, this episode. They know a lot more than I do, I'll tell you that much. So aside from mastering diabetes, is there anyone else that you, anyone else's work that you've looked to for assistance with your own transition? I mean,
1: the, the work of, of Michelle McMacken has been pretty huge in this as well. Like I've seen all her anecdotes of patients reversing insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes on a whole food plant-based diet. Neil Barnard talks about it. There's, there's, there's actually such a large medical community who, who are practicing this. The fact that it's not mainstream and the fact that not everyone knows about it is I just can't believe it. I really can't believe it. I remember, <laughs> I remember years ago when I watched What the Health for the first time 10 minutes in, I I turned it off. I walked away. I was like, this is the biggest load of nonsense. Propaganda. Propaganda. This is is one
0: of my questions, what you thought about veganism years ago. I I just,
1: I really thought it was propaganda that these people were making up this science that it doesn't exist. Where is it? Because the paleo and keto communities, they don't pass this around. They do do not even, from what I'm aware of, I'm not saying everyone, but from from the communities and circles that I was in, we would never talk about the potential benefits of a high carb, low fat approach. Never. In fact, it was always finding evidence to refute any suggestion that you know fats are a bad thing. They would refute that. and No, fats are the good thing. Carbs are the devil. So when I watched What the Health, I literally walked away after 10 minutes. I laughed it off. I remember almost writing a blog article about it, saying that this is just so wrong. They don't know anything about diabetes. When <laughs> in hindsight, I was so short-sighted myself you know, and, and that's the beauty of this self-experiment is that I had to go through this paleo keto end of the spectrum to really understand what the hell was going on in myself. I wouldn't have believed anyone if they told it to me, I had to live it. I had to go through it. And that's why, I wanted, that's why I'm glad we're talking today. I don't want anyone else to have to live that experience that I went through. If you're a diabetic and you, you know, I don't want you to get to that point where I was so insulin resistant, had such terrible blood sugars. You know, still, if you want to go on the, on, on the journey and do the self-experimentation, give it a, give it a crack, but just be aware of, of what could possibly happen. You know, so, you know, going back to what your question was, you know, about how is it not mainstream and like, what did I think about it early on? I think these docos are doing a great job of, of trying to get the message across, but it's very hard to get the message across to somebody who is on the other side, you know, essentially believe the complete opposite to be true. It's very, very difficult to convince someone. You know, unless, like I said, unless you go through it to, and, and find a reason to make a change, it, it's, it's a tough message to send, which is why I want to just share my journey. And that's why I always say, I'm going to do the experiment on myself. I'm going to look at the evidence, see what it says. And I'm going to share it with you guys. If you want to do keto, fine. If you want to do plant-based, great. But just, just, this is me sharing my experience, you know, and I almost feel a duty. I really do feel like a responsibility and a duty as somebody living with diabetes. I get these amazing insights that no one else gets. You know, I've got my science background. Combining those two things is, is quite, quite a unique position to be in, that it would almost feel irresponsible of me not to step up and, you know, be a spokesperson for share. yeah, and just share this, this information, you know, which is that's why I, I do what I do at the risk of getting absolutely trolled beyond belief on social media and I've experienced some horrific comments, but I'm okay with that because I'm sharing my truth that I wholeheartedly believe in And, you know, I'm going to provide the evidence to back it up. I'm going to, I'm going to share my personal results, my blood results, all of that sort of stuff. And then, you know, people out there can make their decision.
0: Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two week plant based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. The comment about the, what the health and, and doing a blog about that, I, you know, I still see people do posts or blogs about what the health and, and trying to sort of have a dig at it. And I always think that that person is just not ready in their own journey to it. Look, that documentary exaggerates things that every great documentary that will not, maybe not every, but most documentaries, right. To to get some, some people talking about it and some headlines, they need to, to exaggerate elements and, and have a real experience right and and there's various parts of that documentary that definitely do that yeah but the general message throughout that documentary in particular like i remember when when i was going through my own journey and trying to work out what what i should eat i was heavily resistant to any sort of vegan or plant-based message yeah and 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 to the point where if any if i read anything i'd do whatever i could to disprove it and come at it with a level of skepticism. But I think, I think being a skeptic is, is, a, is a good quality mm. if you can still be open to the idea that maybe we're not always right. Yeah, I mean, I, I
1: completely agree. I've had this same experience where I would find any reason to disprove or to prove or justify my behaviors or my choices. I've now realized that I'm a lifelong learner. I will never know it all. But I'm always willing to put up my hand and go, hey, I made a mistake, or turns out that this is the way. And, you know, maybe we'll never know everything, but that's when it comes down to, you know, the reason why I feel so passionate now about plant based, a whole food plant based diet or a vegan diet, whatever you want to call it, is the other things that come along with it. So I've proved to myself that it's fantastic for my health, completely reversed all of these things that, that were coming, you know, that were showing poorly in my blood results. But along with it comes the, this sense of, you know, immense fulfillment that I'm leading a sustainable life, the most sustainable life I've ever ever lived. That my environmental footprint is smaller than ever before. That the community of people who, who and you would know all about this through your community, such a tight knit, supportive group of people. You know, there's just there's all these other pillars that you address by making one choice to your diet. You know, for me. It, it came from health, other people's animal ethics. I mean, that's a huge one as well. Like, I'm a massive animal lover, mate. I've had your dog on my lap the whole podcast. He's sleeping in a little <laughs> in a little ball. Like, I love, and I've got my dog Dennis. I got to give a shout out to Dennis. Hey, Den, Dennis, mate, what a
0: legend! If, you, if you're not following Dennis on Instagram, guys, get amongst it. Dennis Harrisburg. <laughs> he probably actually could have been a, the, the, a legitimate third guest on this show because he uh, he can talk. He does he talks. <laughs> He's famous for talking. Anyway. So, mate,
1: yeah, like I said, you know, I made this transition for health purposes. Um, This diet well and truly proved itself to be incredibly effective. I feel fantastic. I feel good inside, in my soul, for what I'm doing for the environment, for animals, for sustainability. And then there's just so many other benefits I've noticed, which I haven't even touched on, but like my performance in the gym, my ability to recover, my, you know, my energy levels throughout the day, aches and pains, niggles have gone away, all of these things. You know, I just... I, I
0: can't speak highly enough about the changes that I've seen. Mm. I did a uh post yesterday about the environment and sustainability side of things. It's crazy. Just you know, 14 or 15% of total greenhouse gas emissions are from livestock, the inefficiencies of farming of, of animals, I think it was chickens, for every eight calories in, we get one calorie out. Oh for every 34 calories in for beef, we get one calorie out. You know, very smart people have calculated that we have enough food production right now to feed 10 billion people, yet we have people dying every single day of starvation. Right. And there's predictions of I think by 2050 the population at nine billion. We we need to seriously look at the efficiencies of our food system.
1: Absolutely. And you know, I've always considered myself to be aware. I mean, I've, like I said, I grew up in nature, connected to nature, love for animals. Yet I was leading this lifestyle that was so disconnected from my value hierarchy and my beliefs. It, it just felt, I felt like a bit of a fraud in a sense. It's like, well, if you really love the planet and you really love animals, you can take that next step. And guess what? You're still going to be healthy. You're not going to waste away and lose your muscle. Like I will admit I did lose a bit of weight when I made this transition. You were you were messaging was, me a few uh, times. I was a bit worried, so I lost I lost about two and a half, three kilos pretty quickly, which for me was a, a slight hurdle or negative, but for most people, it's fantastic to think that you can eat almost whatever you want in the amounts that make you full and still lose weight. It's like a dream weight loss drug if you think about it. So the reason I was losing weight was just because I swapped these super calorie dense foods, you know, animal products and oils and stuff for very calorically sparse food, but nutrient dense. So I'm eating tons of fiber. I'm like literally full to the brim, losing weight, but I can literally try to eat as much as I want and I just couldn't gain weight. Right? That was in the beginning. It's slowly starting to come back now because I didn't realize how much I actually had to eat to yeah, gain the weight. It's but
0: common. It's very, very common. I mean, the a whole food plant-based diet that's Rich in fiber, it's so much volume, it's a naturally it's a natural fat burning diet. That's the thing that gets me about the ketogenic diet being promoted as this crazy weight loss diet. When you look at the populations around the world and the BMI, it's always lowest in the vegans. Yeah. You know that ch- you you've got to you have to eat a lot of food because yeah. the calorie density is not comparable to animal products. Yeah, but I enjoy that. Yeah. And, and when you learn to, to eat in abundance, and, and for, for most people, as you said, that's a, that's a huge benefit. For guys, I understand, that want to hold their weight or put on some weight, yes, you need to learn to focus your attention to certain foods mm. that you perhaps didn't need to previously because you're eating animal products, but with experience and with time and, and just feeling it in your own body, yeah, everyone that, that I speak to works that out. Yeah, It's not an overnight process. It can take a few months. It might take six months, but it's, it's certainly worth it. But, but I mean, from, from my
1: perspective, when I'm consulting you know, with, with my exercise physiology hat and my diabetes educator hat on, and I get a type two who's got metabolic syndrome and is, who's obese comes into me to see me, it is so exciting for me to be able to say, hey, you can actually, if you eat this diet, you can eat as much of these foods as you want, fill up, go for it. Don't, you don't have to be restrictive. It is so hard to overeat calories on a plant-based diet. So, if someone comes in and they want to lose weight, and I tell them they can eat whatever they want, you know, within this plant based menu, that's un- unbelievable for them. You know how excited it's they get. You know, really good point. You don't have to say you've got to cut out a whole food group. You've got to be, you know, and you don't have to calorie count. Nope. Nope. Good luck overeating vegetables until you get fat. Yeah. Well,
0: These, I mean, you know, those trials that we spoke about, Neil Barnard's trials of, of low fat plant based versus the Diabetic Association. Those were not calorie-controlled diets. That was eat these foods. Here's the principles: go away and eat until you're full. And people will drop in kilograms. Yeah,
1: it's just really about sticking to what's on the menu on this plant-based menu and just enjoy it. Actually enjoy your food. You can build such a healthy relationship with food. I realized again in hindsight that I have had quite an unhealthy relationship with some foods. You know, I really have demonized and restricted certain foods, and I've put other foods on a pedestal, thinking it's it's the, the best kind of food when really. If it's natural and in its whole form, it's a good food.
0: You know, you can go for it. True, <laughs> well, it's been amazing having you on the show. Where to from from here? What's what's your future looking like in terms of your passion for education in this space?
1: Well, look, it, it is. I'm only four months into this plant based journey. I definitely want to keep pushing it longer term, way long term and see what else you know. I notice, what other changes I notice. Can I confidently say I will be 100% plant-based for the rest of my life? I don't know. But what I can say with confidence is that I will be 95% plant-based for the rest of my life. I really will. I, I've totally fallen in love with this kind of eating, and the foods that I thought I had a problem with back in the day, um, I thought I had a really terrible grain sensitivity, has, has actually improved. So I wonder if my microbiome's changed or something's happened, but I'm able to tolerate the foods that I once, to some extent, demonized. So look, I'm going to keep going on this journey. I'm going to keep eating the same way I have been, enjoying all the foods, enjoying all the carbs. I'm going to keep the animal foods out of my diet. Um, you know, my family are eating this way too now. My dad's doing it. My sister's doing it.
0: What What is your your sister sisters colleagues and your dad's colleagues? Are they? Is it something that they would speak to them about? What what do they think about it? I think,
1: I think unfortunately, like we said, this message, it seems like a restrictive and extreme diet. And the fact is, it's it's just not restrictive and, and extreme when you think about the kind of extremes of disease that you can face if you don't follow this kind of eating. You know, so it's just putting it into perspective. I think at the moment it's they got to be careful with with what they say. You know, my dad's an eye specialist. If you got to see my dad for it, your eyes check, the last thing you want him to be telling you is. What to be eating? People get quite offended by that, so he's very careful. He'll he'll sort of, perhaps he'll recommend resources or point people towards other experts in the field. But you know, he uses me as an, as an example. But I'm going to keep sharing my journey, and I just hope that this eventually becomes sort of mainstream known information that a that a whole food plant based approach can cure and reverse a number of diseases, and that it's not restrictive mm. and extreme,
0: and that it's you know, you know, and I. Th- I think you know. I like the the fact that you you openly say, "Look, I'm four months into this. I'm I'm not putting a label on it at this stage." I, I know. I think you know. In the in the future, I'll I'll either be 100% plant based or 95, whatever it is. Right? We know what's also fascinating is that like we know that the Mediterranean di- um, diet, the Dash diet, these diets, which initially the Mediterranean diet was coined by a guy called Ansel Keys. And he described it as a largely vegetarian diet, low in animal saturated fats with an abundance of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, right? And unsaturated fats. He described that. And we know that that diet is associated with low cardiovascular risk low incidence of type 2 diabetes overall people are living longer on that diet so it's since the mediterranean diet has shifted a little bit since mm. then and people like to in the western world like we do with everything we have like to attribute the health benefits to the olive oil as opposed to the abundance of of, of plants but i think the the message here is we're not we're not preaching a veganism message here we've spoken about insulin resistance and the effect of various foods have on actual insulin resistance, how that affects your glucose control. You know, a middle ground diet is potentially quite, quite bad for, mm. for glucose control. But when you're getting to those other ends of the spectrum, whether it's fully ketogenic or whether it's plant based and you're up there, you're going to have better glucose control. And when we're talking about a plant based diet from 85, 90, 95, 100 percent, if you're moving in that way, then you're doing great things for your health, you're doing great things for the environment. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, like we said before, by ticking one box, you're ticking multiple. You know, it's that one choice. And and it's funny because sometimes I'll, I'll forget why I'm doing this. So it started off for health reasons. And then all of a sudden, let's say I'm out for dinner and there's an option that has meat on the plate. And I'm like, oh, I could get away with that. But then I'm like, hold on a second. I love animals. I don't want to eat the animals. Like then the animal ethics parts come back into it and then the sustainability and then it goes back to health. And it's just this you know interweaved you know thoughts of, of different times of the day, why am I doing this and there's just so many reasons to do it and and obviously for me, the biggest the most you know overwhelming one is that i've noticed this incredible increase in insulin sensitivity i mean I'm eating carbohydrates for the first time in my in, in probably eight years to the amount that I'm eating with the, the least amount of insulin I mean that says something about what this diet is doing, and i'm going to keep pushing this message. I know a lot of people get a little bit frustrated and they think that, you know, I'm attacking them for being keto. I'm I'm absolutely not. And I think a a good place to end on this would would be just for me to say, you know, I I did say it earlier on, is that if you're on track to improving your health and you're happy with what you're doing and you can justify your choices, go for it. I want the best for you. But just be willing to just, just know that there is another solution where you can get those same outcomes. And you might have to go to the other end of the spectrum, but you can achieve that. And, you know, I've, I've just, I've walked the walk. I literally just did it. I know I'm only one person, but I also have been receiving tons of messages from other people in the same boat that said, you know, when they were on a high fat keto diet, that their insulin to carb ratio was really, really average, really, really bad. And as soon as you sort of transition to the other end, you, it comes back. The body's trying to come back to that sort of homeostatic, that, that healthy, healthy place. And we've just
0: got to let it, let it do its thing. it's been awesome to have you on the show and really appreciate you coming on being so transparent sharing your journey and i really look forward to seeing how things play out for you and i look forward to seeing how how much your message can impact other people's lives because i truly think it can and i truly think that a lot of the information and your experience is information that has been somewhat buried and you know, I'm 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 hoping along with many other doctors out there that like you said before, this becomes a little bit more mainstream and people with type one diabetes, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes have just that little bit more hope.
1: Mate, I gotta thank you for for planting that seed a day. Honestly, like, you know, by just sending a message and opening my mind to it was just enough to get me thinking about the potential to change and I mean, I finally got there, but the way you did it was, was really awesome. And I personally want to take that same approach when it comes to trying to re-educate people or just just put the information out there in a way that the same way that you did it. it. wasn't abrasive. It wasn't attacking. It didn't make me feel like I was a bad person or doing the wrong thing. You just gently gave me a little nudge in the right direction. So I'm going to keep doing that.
0: So thanks, mate. Absolute pleasure. Legend. Thank you. Cheers. Hey guys, Simon here. Wow a lot to take in from that one. I hope you enjoyed it. I think it's important to round out this conversation by talking a tiny bit further about insulin resistance in people without diabetes who are doing the keto diet and why this is a tad concerning. The most significant issue I have with it is that we know whole grains and legumes are consistently food groups associated with longevity. I mean, The commonality among blue zone populations, populations that live the longest and have the most centenarians, is legume consumption. And as I mentioned or alluded to in my introduction and per the Lancet paper in 2018 by Reynolds on carbohydrate quality, which I'll put in the show notes, This study found diets high in unrefined carbs, in particular whole grains, these are high fiber diets are protective against many chronic diseases and premature death. So if you're moving to a ketogenic diet and removing these food groups, you're essentially increasing your risk of various chronic diseases and premature death. The other important thing to touch on is why Drew had good results on the paleo diet initially. Paleo diet was still very low carb. So it wasn't a middle ground type diet like the Diabetic Association Guideline Diet. And he was, this is a key point, he was only able to have those carbohydrates after a workout when he was most insulin sensitive. We spoke about that. He wasn't having the bucket loads of fat like he was on the keto diet. And his insulin to carb ratio was indeed better than when he was on the ketogenic diet. On keto, his insulin to carb ratio was one to six. When he was doing the paleo diet, it was 1 to 10 to 15. And when he was doing or now he's doing the plant-based diet, it is 1 to 15 to 30. So essentially, as his dietary fat has gone down and plant-based foods gone up, he has exhibited a better ability to tolerate carbohydrates, not just after a workout, but at any time of the day. As always, if you love this episode, let Drew and I know on social media, you can find Drew at Drew's Daily Dose, of course, me at Plant and the Proof. And if you have a spare minute and can leave a review on iTunes, it would be greatly appreciated. Friends, that's it for today. I'll see you in the next episode.